Welcome to the Best of 2019 episode of the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, I'm your host, and this show required some tough choices, you guys, but we narrowed it down to six based on your feedback and our intuition. We are so grateful to every single guest for every single listen and word of support. You guys, we are on a mission to create a better world, and a big part of this mission is met by bringing meaningful conversations to the endurance sports world. This podcast is 100% listener-supported, and we'd like to keep it that way. Join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash triathlete, where you can check out the YTP Mini and over 100 other member exclusives. This community is strong, and we are fired up that you are here. Okay, we are launching this best of rocket with creator Talbot Cox from YTP, episode 139. In the last few years, this guy has taken the world of professional triathlon by storm. He is the man behind the camera, the one who has revolutionized content creation for athletes where sponsors win, the athletes win, and yes, Talbot wins because the good of all doesn't leave him behind. He has taken great risks to follow his passion, but his innate abundance mindset will lead him to success every single time. Talbot has changed the game, and I love this guy's passion, and I love to see how far he has come since recording this podcast with us just a year ago. Doing what you love in this life is something that BJ and I are very passionate about, and it's really a question that Talbot's story calls us to ask of ourselves. We have the right to do what we love in this life, whether it is your profession or it is a great hobby of yours. You have the right to do what you love. And on that note, you guys, we're diving in with a guy who is living a passion-fueled career, Mr. Talbot Cox. After I was 20 years old and I left the house, I didn't get a penny after that. So it's kind of like creating your own branded and like hustling as well and making sure like you got to connect the dots and all that like i wish i could go around and give away photos for free but it's like you're not giving away photos for free it's like you're doing it in a micro way to make money on the back end so that's where it started with the professional athletes it's like it was finding this algorithm or or kind of business strategy of how can i promote gwen have her pay me also give back to her sponsors and then also set it up to where in the long run I can build relationships with all of her sponsors that when they need digital assets, I can make a lot of money from them as well. So it's a win, win, win. It's like, I'm, I'm not just trying to here to collect money and be like, Oh, awesome. At the end of the day, I'm walking home with a lot of money. It's more so the fact that how can we win for the athlete, win for me and win for the sponsor. And so I've found like a happy medium of, producing a video, hyping the athlete, and providing digital assets for the sponsors for social media use. And so that was finding the medium, which took about probably six months. And then I think I found that and it's continuing to grow and evolve and all that. But that's where I think trying to disrupt the the traditional photographer's um, standpoint, which a lot of them are very vocal about that and probably don't like me for what I'm doing. But thing about it is is those athletes continue to grow and they continue to evolve and they're I would say they're the most like looked upon athletes in in the sport and another athlete that's done an incredible job is that is like Jan Ferdino has done an incredible job he has his manager Felix who is also an incredible photographer and they do like a very similar thing 
he basically manages him. He goes to all of his events and his races and he shoots photos and they provide those photos to all of their sponsors for social media use. And then it, within return, it promotes Jan Fredino, another athletes like Lindsay Corbin. Her husband does an incredible job, Chris Corbin, at capturing and making videos and providing them to our sponsors. And then if they ever need that for like digital use or, or selling the photos, then they can make, he can make money on the back end of that. So it's, it's finding that happy medium to where everyone wins. And that's what I've eventually have come to. So f first of all, what you, the way you went into that is you went into it with this abundance mindset where everybody can win. It's not just about Talbot making money. How can I make money? I quit my job. I left my secure paycheck. How can I make money doing this? So you took a risk, but you're asking the athletes now to take a risk too. But because your mindset is let's all win, right? And I was saying this to you, like the universe has your back, man. It, it, I mean, just in the time that we have talked this morning and, you know, in these few minutes on the podcast, it's your kind of this 10,000 foot view of the big the big um, kind of picture of everything is really what's allowing you to win because you're not just in this selfish desire of taking care of you and taking care of Rachel and, you know, that you're in it, man. You're in it. You're willing to do the hustle. You are willing to take the risk and you're living it, asking your athletes to kind of do it uh, to a degree as well to, to trust, but you kind of tested it on yourself first. And when I think about like a coach, like BJ does this, like he'll test things out on himself. He'll do crazy stuff. He does like Lionel Sanders <laughs> kind of crazy stuff where he'll be like, all right, for six weeks, I'm just going to like do this. Or like he did this one stint where he was like racing. I'm not going to drink on the bike. I'm not going to drink on the bike because I keep cramping on the run. Well, guess what happened, right? <laughs> so obviously he's not going to give that to his athletes, but you tested it on yourself. You saw that you could build your Instagram account. So you already kind of had this street cred. You yeah. had a little bit of street cred. And um, so that abundance mindset is huge, dude. Like, keep that. And I don't think you could ever lose it because it's already delivered so much to you. The momentum is so is carrying so fast right yeah, now. Yeah, you've got a yeah. lot of momentum. So did you look at, like, um, Lindsay Corbin? Young, did you look at these models as you were building yours? Like, what was your framework? Or being a creative guy, were you just kind of taking whatever the next step was that came to you? Well, I think what it all really comes down to it is it comes down to passion. And since I did my first triathlon when I was, I think, 12 years old, like I have always lived and just eat, sleep and breathe triathlon. I mean, I started when I was 15 years old, I started my own kids triathlon team just because I wanted to be on a kids triathlon team and there wasn't one in Oklahoma City. And I was like, well, heck, if there's not one here, then I'll freaking make one. I mean, my mom was driving me to my own practice that I was like... <laughs> training kids yeah. to train. I mean, like, I wasn't even an adult and like all these parents are like giving me envelopes of money and checks and all that. I had to like open up a bank account just so I could like get the money. And it's like, I was doing that just so I could feed my obsession with triathlon. And that's how much I like loved it. So I think that like, I eventually got out of triathlon and tried to take the more like software development and I just wasn't happy. And I think that that's what it all comes down to is once I got back involved in triathlon and I started shooting and I started making videos and all that, I had so much passion for it. Like I didn't even need food. I didn't need caffeine. I don't even need like race morning. I can go like all day. People are like, what have you eaten today? I'm like, oh, uh, I actually haven't eaten this morning. And it's like, this is right after a finish of an Ironman. It's like three o'clock and I just, I forget because I just run on that energy and that fuel. And so 
I think that it, it kind of goes back to whatever your career is, you should have passion in what you're doing. And that is what has drove me to where I'm at today, like with the success, because I love what I'm doing so much. Like I can lose sleep over it. I could like not eat over it. I don't need to make a lot of money doing what I'm doing because I love it so much. And I think that I can now start two years later to see the fruits of my labor really all come together. And I think that like everything happens for a reason. But now I've been able to see like with growing Gwen's account, with growing Tim and Rennie's and Lionel's account, and not only their accounts, but like their brand names, that that was all passion I had to promote them. Because I just look at it back like I visually wanted to see everything I could on Lance Armstrong. So there was a photographer, Litz, Liz, I can't, Liz Cruz or something like yeah. that. And, and I was, I would always follow her personal stuff because she was Lance Armstrong's photographer. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's like incredible. Like I, I love what she does. Like I couldn't imagine being Lance Armstrong's photographer. Like I would follow him everywhere. So I kind of took what she was doing. She was providing images to all of his sponsors. And then I also looked at something like the Red Bull um, media pool. I'm not for sure if you guys are aware of that. Basically, if you're a Red Bull athlete, mm-hmm. um, they hire photographers to come shoot you. So if you go to like redbullcontentpool.com or you could Google search it, you can type in an athlete's name on there, like Gwen Jorgensen, who previously was sponsored by Red Bull. And then it would give you a massive gallery of images. And depending on what your source was, a majority of them could use it for free. So like USA Today could grab an image of Gwen Jorgensen and use it for free on the front cover of their magazine Reason being is it's Gwen Jorgensen with a massive Red Bull logo somewhere. So it was like basically free marketing. Hey, use this photo for free because it's marketing our brand. So I kind of thought of that in my own sense. I'm like, well, it's $19 a month to have a Squarespace website. Let's grab (laughs) GwenJorgensenMedia.com. And then basically, so we started with Gwen and we are just uploading these massive amounts of images into here and all of our sponsors could use them for free. So we'd go to Gwen's races, we would shoot the Husky Invitational 5K, which no one, who even knows what that is other than track (laughs) athletes in that part of the country. And so we shoot that race, we upload all these images to the media pool, we put her time, we put everything, and all these news outlets were like, hey, you guys can use this for free. So like, and then that's the same day we launched her YouTube channel. So it was like, boom, she picked up like, 10 or 20,000 subscribers. So I think within 48 hours and it's like, that's, that's what creating hype is and what does what it does. And so that's kind of our ultimate goal. So I took a combination of passion, uh, and looking at other businesses in the way, and then also creating my own, um, and then just doing it that way. So that's how that all kind of like came about. I think the social media, the social media was the spark, right? The social yeah. media. And, and we talk or we hear a lot how the social media, they need to detach from it. And a lot of people just delete it and remove themselves from it so they can't use it. But in this, in this scenario, it's the relationship to social media. And so when you can, when you can dive into social media and use it in the right way, Mm -hmm. right? Don't let it consume you, but use it in the right way. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did, especially with Instagram I know Twitter and Facebook. And I don't know if there's anything else, but would you, Instagram's the, yeah, yeah, I would, I would definitely say, and, and the, we ended up, Gwen's YouTube grew really, really fast, and so we ended up going to the YouTube headquarters, and um, a sweet lady there, uh, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she really helped us out with explaining to us the difference between Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and the craziest thing is, is you, you'll walk into a doctor's office, 
and you're and you're wasting time scrolling through Instagram or you're sitting at the coffee shop and you're and you're just scrolling because you have nothing better to do. So you're just looking through and you're looking at other people's stuff. But something like YouTube is a platform that you're going there for advice. So you're not just scrolling past Jan Ferdino's picture, past Lionel Sanders' picture and just glance at it and you're like, oh, this is what he's doing. Cool. Keep scrolling. I might like this. Cool. When you go to a platform like YouTube, you went there yourself. It's not like you scrolled past it. You went there yourself and you're looking for information because you spent time to click on it versus scrolling past it. And you're watching. So you have way more of a captive audience. And that's the same thing like with a podcast. You don't just scroll past a podcast and it just starts playing. People have come to your podcast to listen to it. And that's how, I mean, every business is. But that's the difference between Facebook and Instagram and YouTube is you have a way more direct audience. So that's where we found that making like cooking videos or nutrition videos on Gwen and Pat's channel or stretching videos or basically her main like workout videos update on, on her life and kind of all that. And so people come there for more of a direct, we build a one-way relationship with Gwen and we can follow her through her career. And that's what's been so interesting to see. Like with Lionel Sanders is we're able to promote these videos and give it to an audience. And so it's like a one-way relationship. Everyone feels like they're there training with Lionel Sanders. They feel like they've been through the journey. They've been through the hustle. And that's what would be incredible to see him succeed is one day, like when he wins a race, does everyone feel like that they went through the heartache with him, that they went through his bad races with him, that they saw his training. They feel like they were there with him. Mm -hmm. And then when he wins, it's like everyone wins. And so it's so funny to get on like these triathlon forums and see all these people that are like Lionel Sanders missionaries because they they truly feel like that Lionel Sanders is their friend like they feel like they know him they see his sarcasm they see his dry sense of humor they see him training they see him when he cries and so they literally feel like so when they meet him they like freak out but it's because he has opened a door and and really like a new realm of media and letting someone in so that's why he has so many fans that's why he has so many people on his side because they feel like that they're friends with them at, at the end of the day. Well, and what Lionel brings to the table is vulnerability. Yeah. He's really vulnerable. And that's what people are attracted to because whether they realize it or not, like we're all suffering to some degree. And so here he is saying, hey, look, like you can look at me on my brand new bike and my super freshy gear and all that stuff. But like I'm, I'm walking the gauntlet and I'm going to and I'm going to open it up and show you guys like, you know, I go down the I've got this this addictive personality. and I'm going to go down this road 100 percent until it's completely exhausted and then I'm going to go down this other road and maybe I'm going to take some of those things. And it's almost like you're watching like a horror movie. And I'm not saying it's a horror movie, but it kind of is like, yeah. and you're kind of covering your eyes like, oh my God, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Cause you know, if that person just took a left, then they wouldn't be running right into the killer. Right. But he kind of just runs right into it. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's its own kind of drama. Right. Yeah. But that's what people crave is like when we think about authenticity. Right. And that's really a buzzword right now that's authenticity is showing showing your vulnerability i think there's a big movement right now it's kind of an underground movement but this underground movement of men who are really learning to become vulnerable because i think men in these paradigms and these old outdated 
you know, um, roles that they're supposed to play. I think a lot of them are just suffering in silence. And so I'm always the first one and I might piss some people off when I say this, I'm always the first one that's like, who's got the guys back? Like who, mm-hmm. who's taking, who's, who's holding the space for the dudes? Like I want to hold the space for the guys mm-hmm. because there's so many women's only this and women's only that. And, and, you know, no men allowed. And it's like, we are pushing them further and further and further into this despair. And I think that's what Lionel's got just so magically. And I'm a hundred percent sure that wasn't his agenda. And that's what makes it so much more real and relatable is like, he's giving that voice to yeah. guys. Like you can be at the top of the top and you can cry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that's where a lot of people can relate to Lionel is that no matter what your profession is, if it's if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a, a farmer, or you're just like whatever you do, a receptionist, it's like you all go through struggles. You all go through times where you're like, man, I just can't train because I, I just my body doesn't want to let me train or I'm just going through a tough time or all of this stuff. And I think that's where people can relate as Lionel really opens that window to you got to continue to push and we, we all go through hard times. I mean, everyone looked at him and, and he, he, half the people that are, that are really intelligent and really could like study the sport and all that. They're like, Oh, he's way overcooked for Kona. And then the other half people were like, Oh, he's going to win it. We've seen him do the training. Like we've never seen someone work this hard when ultimately every other professional triathlete out there is working just as hard and, and they're doing, they're going through the same struggles that Lionel's going through. I mean, look at someone like Sebastian Keenly. He's, another incredible athlete, they all go through those times. It's just they don't make it public like he is doing. So he gets the most criticism, but he also gets the most praise. So it's like finding that balance. But that's where people can relate as they see Lionel Sanders struggle. They see him walking in Kona. They see him crying, and they're like, wow, it's okay to, it's okay to cry. It's okay to fail. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to get fired from your job it's okay to take a risk. And that's what Lionel did. He ended up going completely plant-based and like he took that risk and it was very dumb of him because it was one month from his world championship. Maybe if he would have done it maybe six to eight months prior, then he would have had everything figured out and his body would have been ready for it. But you can't make like a drastic change like that quick. And so it's like basically finding that medium of where what what works for you and balancing and then also doing it over time not just like a uh, rational decision because you're just like oh so but what's so cool about it is people can relate is they're like wow he took that risk and it, it empowers them to take that risk or, or go down that journey and no matter what it is some things that will probably hurt you bite you in the butt right away and some things that like maybe that like the fact that Lionel took that risk this year will help him lead to an Ironman World Championship next year. So you can't do it until you make that leap. And the thing about Lionel is that, and we know this from training, right? So many, the athletes that, a lot of the athletes that come to us for training, it's like, we look at what they've been doing. It's like all gray zone. It's Mm -hmm. all gray zone, right? Nobody's moving. No extremes. Nobody's moving anywhere in the gray zone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's no gray zone with Lionel in his in his brand, in his persona. So you're going to have the people that are like, oh, he's totally cooked, like the doubters. You're going to have the naysayers. And then you're going to have the people that are like, no way, he can do anything. He's going to get this. And that's what builds so much exciting drama. And uh, and then you're bridging that gap and you're able to get this out to the masses. And it's just, it's amazing. And I know that you um, have pissed some people off. Can we talk a little bit (laughs) about like when you first started to realize that you're, 
are totally disrupting this comfortable recipe of race photographs and selling them in the way that that athletes do business? Yeah, for sure. I basically started <laughs> shooting just like any other business, like you're going to come in and you're going to disrupt. And, um, and I've never really spoke like publicly on it, so I don't want like anyone to get offended. But I mean, basically, any business you do or any like risk in life that you take, you're going to upset some people. And, and that's just ultimately where you got to listen to yourself, make sure you have good judgment and make sure that you're doing something right. Um, and, and maybe you might be upsetting people and you just got to continue doing what you're doing um, as long as it's not like harming others um, physically. So basically I just, I started the realm and it, it all kind of goes back to using triathlon images, um, and race day photos as that. So I would, let's say like I go to a race with Lionel Sanders and I just like capture a whole lot of photos. And I basically just built this algorithm in my head, um, of, or not my head. Like I wrote it all down of like, let's say we have a start listed Oceanside. So we have all these athletes racing and I have all of these contacts from everyone from A2 bikes to specialized bicycles to Boardman bicycles to Canyon bicycles. And it's really easy to look at a start list, see what all athletes are racing. And then you warn in advance all of the companies that are going to be at that race. And so basically what I've done is, is I've shot the race. The second the race is over, I bounce out of there. I edit all the photos as fast as I can and I upload them. So what that would do is, is that would give access to all of the sponsors to use the photos. And I sell my photos for $50 for social media use, everyone except my clients. So like Lionel Sanders sponsors can use photos of Lionel Sanders for free for social media use. So of course, when you get someone like Alistair Brownlee who crosses the finish line at a race, okay, his, his company, they don't care what the photo is or who it's cut from or the angle of it, how incredible a photo of it is. They're so excited in that moment. If they have access to an image, they want to grab that image and post it. Because so they want to be the first ones. Because they want to be the first ones yeah. and they're excited <laughs> for it. Versus if I sat on images for three to four days, then it, it'd be just like you. Like if you cross the finish line into Iron Man and I got an awesome picture of you, I'm like, hey, $200 at Iron Man World Championship. And you're like, oh my God, here you go. And you're going to give me the money for that image right away because you're so excited about it. And versus if you're three days later and you've already seen the finisher pics and you've already seen everyone's iPhone pictures and all that. And I'm like, hey, $200. And you're like, mm. uh, thank you, you so much. I really, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. <laughs> I, uh, this person sent me a photo that's a whole lot better. So it's not necessarily like, it's about hustle. It's about, and, that, and that's what life should be about. It should be about, if, if you're sitting there and you're a secretary and you want to move to a high level vice president position, if you just go clock in every day and you sit at your desk all day and you leave, you're never going to hit that vice president position. You have to continue to work, work, ask who you can help, ask what you can do. What else can I do? What else can I do? Is there anything I can do? Can I help you out on this project? I mean, you have to work for that position and that's where I've worked to do. It's upset a lot of people along the way, but a lot of the other photographers that are smart and that are knowledgeable have reached out and been like, dude, what are you doing? Like, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? How are your pictures being posted everywhere? Like incredible photographers. And I'm like, do this, do this. This is what I do. I upload my gallery right away because I'm, I'm here to like, I'm not here to upset people and make money. I'm here to grow the sport of triathlon because I'm so passionate for it. I love that episode with Talbot and I love watching him expand and hustle and build his brand and do what he loves. We are grateful for his time. 
Next up, we've got an amazing soul, so brave and so very much on purpose in his life. Tom Voss is the meditating vet from YTP episode 151. An army veteran who served on active duty from 2003 to 2006, he set off to serve in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004, just 20 months into his training, and it was the very experience that led him to his discovery of moral injury and the 2,700-mile truck on foot to process the pain from sustaining such an injury. Documented in the Emmy-nominated documentary, Almost Sunrise, Tom shows us the depths at which he was willing to heal as a last-ditch effort before suicide. So what I've under, understood from diving, doing kind of a deep dive into moral injury is that I believe they run parallel to each other. So you have post-traumatic stress, which is like the physical conditioning, which is like flashbacks, um, you know, uh, panic attacks, sleeplessness, you know, those types of things. Um, and moral injury is the grief, the guilt, the shame. Um, those things can't be medicated away. So that's where your processing happens. So you come home and you're suffering from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And then here comes moral injury when you're able to sit back and start processing. What did I participate in? Um, was I justified in the things that I did and the things that I saw? You know, what did we do there? The political climate of that time, what did I participate in during that? Was I justified? So these are questions that I started asking myself maybe two years after I came home, and that's where the suffering starts because, you know, like, what could I have done better? You know, how could I have done something differently that wouldn't have ended up with my friend being killed? You know, these situations that you have no, no control over, right? You can't change these things in the past. But still, the mind goes there and says, you know, you could have done this better. You could have trained a little harder. You could have, and you start beating yourself up over these things that you had no control over. So coming back to that present moment is the key, is the the key yeah. element here. Yeah. Where, where when you're in the when you're in the battle in the war, you're completely focused. You're in the moment. Hundred percent. Now you shift environments. Yep. Now you're in a completely different place, and and you lose that ability, or it's not as prevalent. Right. And, and you're not as aware in right. the moment. So I, I guess we're going to get there, but how do you come, how are you pulling yourself back? Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really challenging because I think one of the, one of the problems that military veterans face is some people, this is going to be the pinnacle of their lives. This high point going to a different country fighting in a war, there's you know, less than 1% of the population serves in the United, you know, in the United States military. So you have this extreme, intense, dangerous situation, you know, at kind of the prime, you know, you're in your early 20s, and you come home, and it's going from like 100 miles to like four. And you look for ways to find meaning in your life, because there, you're serving your country, you're protecting, you know, civilian population, it's extremely meaningful, you know, you're helping, you know, the men and the women to the left and the right of you, making sure that they can come home. So it's like really high stakes. Um, and then you come home. And it's not like when I came home, like I remember the only job I could find because at that time, no one was hiring any military people because of post-traumatic stress. And everyone was like, oh, they're just going to come and shoot the place up. So, like, I find myself working for the Wisconsin State Fair 
security third shift, you know, protecting, quote unquote, protecting the main stage from drunk people, essentially, from 11 p.m. till 6 a.m. or 6 a.m. or something like that. So it's like, you know, I was just in a war zone, you know, fighting for my country. And now I'm sitting here wearing a security hat. <laughs> so it's like hot this contrast. Hot. Yeah. Extreme. So, so then on top of that, so you're losing all your meaning and well, purpose and, and you're be, it's being reinforced that you're not worthy. Right. And that you're broken and that you're, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous and it kind of feels like you're being pushed aside and discarded. And, um, so we were trying to figure, and I was 21 when I got out. Uh, so you're trying to find meaning in your life and you're trying to find purpose and you're trying to find connection and that's really difficult i you know i'm from wisconsin so there's no active duty military base there there's uh national guard and reserve but they only meet you know once every month or something like that so here i'm coming back out of active duty military active duty army and i'm sitting on my mom's couch like what what am i what am i going to do now you know how am i going to find purpose how am i going to find meaning and it took me you know a long time and I really struggled and, and crashed and burned a lot and I ended up uh, you know coming home getting my own apartment and enlisting in, in school full-time and getting a full-time job as well and that's only because that's what I felt I needed to do like that was what was expected of me all my friends were graduating college I'm like oh, I gotta I got to graduate college. I got to hurry up and catch up up with all my peers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Was there this feeling like you were behind? Yeah, totally. I was behind and, um, I, I had this experience too, that I just started packing away because I was like, I have no one to relate to. Like I have no one I can talk to about this because everyone just kind of stares at me, you know, like I can't explain to them, you know, the horrors of war because they, you can't. You can't just uh, describe it to people, right? It, the experience of it is sometimes so horrific that it's like, you know, how do you how do you even begin to comprehend, you know, the what human beings are able to do to each other? So you have all this, and it's all internalized now. It took me about two years, and then I started processing it. So like, okay, like what happened? You know, what did I do? What did I participate in? You know, and there's another element too that adds on to the grief and the guilt and the shame, and I think that's it's very prominent in in Western culture uh, because I was raised Catholic. I have all these you know internal mechanisms that are like you know you're a bad person now. So that's again coming from a, a moral standpoint, moral injury. You know, the very first thing you learn as as a child is not okay to take another person's life. So, okay, so now I'm in a situation where I have to do that or I'm dead. So, you know, that that type of stuff it needs to happen in, in war. Otherwise, you know, you lose your life. So now I'm, you know, violating my own moral code as a, as a human being, and I'm trying to justify what I did now that I'm outside of the, the military culture and I'm not in it where it's like, you know, yeah, totally, that's what we have to do. Yeah, you're back in the world where right. it's not okay to take where, another life. Where it's not okay. So you're trying to justify that with yourself. And, you know, you can only say, yeah, I, I had to do what I had to do so many times to yourself until you're just continually analyzing it. So when you're talking about moral injury, we're talking about a wound of the soul. Um, when you witness or participate in something that goes against your own moral uh, belief or your own moral structure or scaffolding. 
that's really what I think is impacting so many veterans. And everyone's being, I shouldn't say everyone, like most people are being treated for post-traumatic stress with medications like I was. So I was on antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication. I was on sleeping pills. And at the same time, I was self-medicating with alcohol and abusing illegal drugs and prescription drugs. So just to give you an example, like because I was in a state of, I don't really care what happens to me. Like, I don't really care if I live or die anymore. There's just like kind of this apathy for life. Um, I would, you know, take a couple ambient and then go out drinking with my friends and just like, yeah, see what happens. You know, <laughs> like I just did not care. care, you know, wherever I would wake up I'd be like, oh, like, how am I going to get home? You know, like, so it would be, uh, those types of situations like that. I mean, I lived like that for almost 10 years. So it's like how, you know, how sustainable it. And like right now you look at the suicide rate for veterans, it's, it's stated at, at 20 a day. So 20 human beings are taking their lives every day in this country because they don't feel that there's any other option. And I, you know, I truly believe that people who end up taking their own lives don't really want to kill themselves, right? They want to stop suffering. They want to stop the suffering within themselves. So they feel that this is the only option that they have. And since coming home, I've, uh, in our platoon, we've lost two guys already. So I know, you know, it's very prevalent. I had a guy text me yesterday that, you know, one of his buddies went to a cemetery and shot himself in the chest. It's like, this is just not going to get better unless we are finding ways to address, you know, these moral conflicts of war. Because the, the medication is going <clears> to <throat> subdue the anxiety right? and it's going to reduce the symptoms. Yes. But it's not getting to the source. Right. It's not the root cause. It's not the root right. cause. We have, a, we have a tendency here in, this, in, in, in the West, I guess you could say, to treat the symptoms versus going towards the root cause, which is, you know, a huge problem because I'm a firm believer and I'm, I'm sure you guys can get on board with this, that there's the lessons are in the pain, you know, the lessons that we need to learn lie in the pain and we do everything that we can do to be comfortable and to not look at, at that, right? We pack it away. And I think, you know, not in all cases, but in my case, you know, the medication was just masking it. Like, like, how can I not think about this anymore? And that, that's what the alcohol was doing. That's what the drugs were doing. You know, they just put me in a different state that I didn't, that I could just be. And to do that, I would have to, you know, essentially get blackout drunk. You know? Yeah. It's, and- it's, sh- it's shifting that, that, that mindset of like the pain and the suffering is actually the healing. Right. So, but this, the same way you're going to learn, you are learning in ultra running, like, yeah, it's going to be long. Like my legs are getting, but that's where you're, that's where you're butting up against right. your belief system and, and the mind that wants to be comfortable. Cause right. it's going it, to, when it's tested, it's going to fall on its default. Right. Yep. So it's whatever it can do to be comfy and cozy yeah. and, and balanced and everything. So when you challenge that system, which we need to challenge it. Right. But it's how do we do that? And, and that's that space. It's, it's yeah. that space of not falling on default, but, but turning the pain and suffering into a, a learning experience and being okay with that. So, it's, so again, it's, it's not resisting it. It's embracing what's coming. And so in your situation with the alcohol and the drugs, it's, it's suppressing it right? and suppressing it and suppressing it. And that becomes the new norm and that's okay. You can still do right. all this stuff. 
when deep down you probably are feeling that urge to dip your toes. Of course. I mean, there's that part of you, that soul part of you that is like, we're here to get to the other side of this dude. Like this is, this is what part of our karma, right? Right. We're here to heal this. And, you know, we take these drugs, like you were saying, like you guys were saying to, so that people don't have to suffer. Right. Right. But unfortunately, what's happening is that the, the root of what it all is, all that energy is still there. And that energy will not be suppressed. It will, in fact, fester yeah. and grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, in, and that suffering, the pain, is the opportunity. Right. It's the gift to heal. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a gift at first, but no. Yeah. Oh my god, we have, uh, I've had a lot of gifts. I mean, I've had a lot of gifts. A lot it's, of it's flipping your whole mindset yeah. upside down. It's turning we, it around. We have a uh, a saying in the in the meditation circles that I run in, and it's um, you know what you resist persists. So it's um, a, a really simple saying, but you know you can apply it to so many different things in your life. You know, so whatever you're you're not ignoring essentially is just going to be amplified and and ramp up and continue to ramp up. You're going to continue to go through these cycles. You're going to continue to crash and burn like, like I did. That's what, you know, until I got to the point of, you know, I was, you know, suicidal. Like, how am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to take my own life? And thankfully before that happened, I kind of made a deal with myself that like, okay, I'm going to exhaust all my resources that I have to try and just give 100% in trying the clinical routes, all the different things that the VA had to offer, um, you know, private sector, uh, meditation, all these different things. Like, I'm just going to give it all. And if none of that works, then that's the only option that, that I have then. So that's what kind of spurred my walk across the country where uh, myself and another Iraq war veteran, we were both in the same boat, and he just said, you know, would you mind if I came with you? And I was like, not at all. And the whole idea was to walk from Wisconsin to California to process and just be with ourselves. And, you know, we made like a pact that, you know, we're not going to listen to music. You know, we're, we're going to really kind of just be with ourselves to start processing. And, and as you know, the physical... Uh, aspect of it, you know, at the end of the day, you're just worn out. So you, there's no like, there's no mental wall or and barrier or strength left to really hold this stuff down. So there's nothing else you can do but to to really look at it. Yeah, and that you know, we see that a lot in endurance sports is yeah. that we break down the body, and then whatever that that breaking down serves as the catalyst yeah. to show us what's inside, what needs what's what needs to be healed. So let's just get a reference on timeline here. So you come out of the military two thousand and six, correct? 2006. The first two years you like go to school, but right. you're already doing the medicating and the like. How yeah. am I even going to live here? This is yeah. crazy. And then it starts getting pretty bad. When does the what when does the walk start 2013 2013 so basically from 2006 till 2013 uh i was stuck in this cycle that's uh, a big span of time (laughs) yeah it was you know i would you know i would drop out of school um and you know just get like a landscaping job and then like pick myself up and then go back to school and like you know use my gi bill and um you know i 
I just could not, you know, get over the hump, I guess you could say with it. So, you know, this continued and I would just, you know, I was quote unquote functional, right? So like I could go to, go to work. I could do these things. I could do what was asked of me. You were good. You were good enough. Right. Like I was going through the motions essentially, you know, and then there was, there were times where I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't participate in life and would just you know, be in my room for 48 hours and not come out, not talk to anyone. Relationships would disintegrate. Yeah. What was the community? What was the community like around you? What was your close community um, for those seven years? Yeah. I mean, it was really um, focused, focused around uh, bars and drinking. So it's like, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends had, you know, we had complimentary drinking habits and, and stuff like that. You know, when you're, when you go to a bar and everyone knows who you are, you know, that's, Right. Yeah, I would feel, totally. Yeah, right, yeah. totally. Right. You have friends there. But at the same time, it's like before it's you drink, a it's bar. Fair, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like, wait, like, you know, right. you have to take a step back. Like, yeah, wow. Like it's so cool. Like, the bartender knows me. Yeah, and I get me free, drinks. free drinks. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah, because I give them all my money, you know. <laughs> right. So, like, exactly. <laughs> and I keep coming back. And I keep coming back. Because yeah. I don't want to live right. anymore. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, sure. Here's some shots. Line them up. I know. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. So, when, tell me about the moment that the inspiration to walk across the country came in. Yeah, I mean, I was in I was in my sister's apartment in Milwaukee, and we were both kind of uh, sitting there and just kind of like she just came back. She was living in Los Angeles, uh, probably for around eight years, and had just come back to Wisconsin. And I was out over at her house, and I was like, I think I'm, you know, it just came to me that I needed to do something pretty drastic to get out of this cycle and out of this loop, which is. Um, really difficult to do in today's world because we have so many responsibilities and there's so many things that we can distract ourselves with, whether it's our phones, TV, uh, internet. I mean, uh, you name it. You can just tune tune out if you want. You know, you can sit there and, and, and flip through Netflix movies and not even pick one for three hours, right? So it's like you have all these distractions. You have all these things to make you comfortable and and feel comfortable in these situations and there's no motivation to change or grow or anything like that or at least there wasn't any in me so i knew that to do that i needed to get myself out of the comfort zone and get myself away from the things that i would easily distract myself with so the idea of walking was it would give me a long time period with the exercise to be able to start processing this stuff. And I can't tell you how many people um, told me and my buddy Anthony that we shouldn't walk. You know, like, why don't you ride a bike? Like, I'll take you on my motorcycle. What are you, you know, what are you guys doing? Like, they just... It was yeah. the fast track, though, yeah, to get there. exactly. Like, it's want, the, you, the easy way, yeah. yeah. It's like, why, why don't you just you drive? You just needed time <laughs> yeah, away yeah. from, you know, running errands and talking about summer vacation. Like, you just needed, a, like, to get away from all that and be... I can totally understand I, that. I just can totally be get by it. yourself. Everybody, it's about getting there the fastest. It's People are just conditioned, yeah. whatever it is, to the most efficient fastest right. way to get to get wherever you're going and it bypasses yeah in their mind they're like that sounds terrible right. why would you do that to yourself did so, you have any <laughs> grasp of how far this was when you were like well maybe we'll go to no California. <laughs> no not really but i mean again it's like could it be any worse than getting hit with yeah. grenade shrapnel right you know it can't be any worse than that right. and yeah for both of us like you know we're both uh, Anthony has a couple deployments under his belt and i had a 12 month deployment under my belt so i think mentally we didn't care really because I mean, in the military, you just have to grind stuff out always. 
So we have you have that in you instilled in you, and you can you can access it um, because it's trained into you essentially. Um, so we were uh, pretty naive about the whole thing, and you know our training was very minimal, which made it even worse for us. <laughs> and <laughs> you your know. packs were like really he- like when yeah. I was watching the movie, I'm like, away, they like, have a wow. lot of stuff in those well, packs. Yeah, they were about 90 pounds when we left, and uh, day two they're about 60. So yeah, <laughs> like, like the first, the there's first, a lot yeah. in there. The first day, I mean, we literally. <laughs> We're walking like no one was going to support us. Like we had everything that we could possibly need for uh, a five-month track it's on still us. Still a little bit in that survival and mode. Transition into winter time too. So I mean, we're we're full-on military mode. Like this is what we're going to need to yeah. accomplish it. You guys were packing too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That too. So that added an- another uh, another flavor to the the whole experience. I as know. Well. I was like, oh my god, they're at the yeah, firing like how- range. Like <laughs> they're bringing guys- gun. Like I think they're still in survival mode. Yeah. But you think- checked with the states, which was oh definitely. Like because yeah. at first people watching them be like, well, wait a minute here. We're, yeah, we're not that. Why that is, stupid, we're all hike, like- hikers <laughs> packing, packing yeah. heat. Well, yeah, it's yeah. That's just, it's just that mentality. Um, once you've been in those situations where you've had to use a weapon to defend yourself, it's like second nature. I remember there's a lot of veterans that just feel completely naked without a firearm because it's like what has saved their lives. And once you you're like, okay, now I don't You're vulnerable. Yeah, you're just like I don't I don't have it. I don't have that. So you're really, you know, when you're going into unknown situations and unknown places, that was just kind of our mentality and you know, we never had to use them or anything like that and they were in our bags most of the time. Um but just knowing that we had them was kind of peace of mind in the mind state that we were at. So how did the processing go down? So that's the intention and just moving the body is going to help you process. But right. like, how did that go down? Like, well, were there some pretty epic moments? They're or? like, they're like stages. So like the, the first stage I would say was the state of Wisconsin was just horrible because our training was basically non-existent. We did, we did like... Wisconsin was the training. Was the training. Oh, yeah. Wisconsin was... No, I mean, I would Iowa say... Training, yeah, Nebraska. I would say Colorado... Uh, Wisconsin to Colorado was training and um, getting our bodies into into proper shape, which is, um, you know, reflecting back is, you know, training is extremely important. And uh, we just didn't do enough of it kind of a thing. The first half was extremely grinding. I remember the first day that we left and they kind of show this in the documentary is like, Oh, it was like 95 degrees in, in Wisconsin summer. So it was extremely humid as well. And I remember like four blocks in, I started getting blisters already. So like my heels just like disappeared and, and we had to like, our goal is 20 miles a day. And every fifth day we would take off. You know, and that's how we planned the whole trek. And that's what we had. That's what kind of our, our path was. So I remember we made it maybe five blocks and we had to like peel off into a fire house where they gave us like ice water and like essentially like aid immediately. And then we like made it 10 miles the first day and we were so demoralized. We're like, oh my God, what are we doing? And of course we like have this huge fundraiser we were doing. We were doing an awareness campaign. It was, a you know, and we were having a documentary made. And we're like the day one, we're just out of the gates, like destroyed. Tom's story is intense and his work in this world is the real deal. We see him delivering talks and teaching yoga and meditating all over the country. We were honored to share his story and endeavors with you guys. Definitely check out Almost Sunrise. It's a deep dive into the healing of violent unrest. 
Next up is the always lovely Magdalena Boulet from YTP episode 159. Magda's running resume is deep. After 10 years of running marathons on the road, which included making the 2008 U.S. Olympic team, she transitioned to running trail and ultra-distance events in 2013. A few years later, Magda won her 100-mile debut at the prestigious Western States Endurance Run and was named North American Ultra Runner of the Year. On the day we interviewed Magda, BJ and I had the chance to tour the production facility at Goo Energy Headquarters in Berkeley, California, where Magda is head of innovation and product development. Seeing where our sports nutrition is produced was a really cool experience. We also got to meet our Salty Squad leader, Noah, and then had this epic chat with Magda. So you could say it was worth the drive. Uh, this 20-minute clip is a nutritional bomb from the importance of gut health to the manipulation of carbs to experience the benefits without impairment to her longtime coaching relationship with Jack Daniels, this snippet captures so much. So slow down and let the information soak in. The health of the gut that you bring into race day has so much to do with your success of sports nutrition during that oh, absolutely. exertion. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's the foods, you know, that the sports nutrition will only work as well as the rest of the engine <laughs> is, mm -hmm. you know, set up to, to work. So, um, your gut is, uh, incredibly important. So the foods that we eat throughout the day will, uh, either make your gut resilient and, and able to, you know, to break down certain nutrients really well and your gut can adopt and uh, be trained to obviously to consume certain sports nutrition, um, but also it can, you know, it can be uh, enriched by, you know, by the foods that you eat outside of sports nutrition. And it will not only allow you to obviously absorb nutrients and break down certain foods during exercise, but it also will affect your brain and your mood and your emotion. Um, yeah, the, you know, the gut is your second brain, so you got to treat it well. I'm glad you mentioned the brain because it's my understanding that the brain's, um, like the biggest source of fuel is carbohydrates. So what's your position on like the low carbohydrate athlete? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I don't want to say that it doesn't work for everyone uh, or it works for everyone. It's really, really individual. And there are certain, as an endurance athlete myself, there are certain workouts that I like to do on no carbs or low carbs or, or fasted workouts, right? Like the timing on when uh, I strategically include carbohydrates will improve my, you know, my ability to use certain uh, substrates, uh, depending for what I'm training for, right? So it always starts with, you know, what are you training for? You know, is it a marathon? Is it an ultra event? Is it a stage race? So depending on, and for the same athlete, that could vary throughout the week, throughout the year, right? You could, I could, I could train for a marathon in the first three, four months of the year, and then I can switch to an ultra, and I would probably be a lot more flexible with the way I approach my fueling during training uh, and do it strategically. So I never say, oh, low-carb diets don't work or 
car, you know, you have to be in 60%. Mm-hmm. It, because I don't, if I don't know the athlete and what they're training for, I can't make that um, conclusion, right? I can't say that without learning about what they're training for. Um, so it, it really depends. There is definitely a benefit to doing occasional fasted workouts for ultra endurance or endurance events and you do you can shift your metabolism and to get to the point where you can where you can um, be metabolically flexible so you can tap in into both substrates is to your advantage and that can be obviously done through the proper diet and what your diet looks like uh, through fueling strategically and obviously or not fueling on certain you know certain workouts and also not knowing your genetics you know you gotta you gotta figure out you know what your baseline is and 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 then you know and then trying to you know to to see if you need to make changes or not depending on what you're training for and how important is body awareness like as a feedback system um even just listening to yeah I mean knowing that because we'll do fasted workouts every now and again but sometimes when I get into the height of my training yeah um it's that doesn't feel right for me like I feel like my body is just always wanting (laughs) yeah (laughs) wanting to absorb and so it doesn't feel as good because those shorter workouts are few and far between right I think that you know again with um with doing fasted workouts, you know, as a coach, I only uh, prescribe them on really easy days or very easy, sometimes long. You do a progression, right? So you might start with just once a week on an easy day, never doing it on a quality day where you have high intensity um, or a really hard, long session. So always doing it on the, you know, on the easy recovery runs that are, or, um, or um, bike rides or swims that are obviously at that kind of zone one, zone two, low heart rate, where I can have a conversation and then building up, you know, maybe from a 30 to 45 minute session to an hour session to eventually working your way up where you can actually do a two hour session that's easy again, not high intensity, fasted. Yeah, and paying attention and noticing yeah. and knowing because your your body's giving you feedback all the time, right. right? So just noticing how your individual body is working, like when when does that hunger come right. in? When you know, and, and watching that. Correct, and also you know when we say fasted, we does it doesn't mean that you can't stay hydrated. It doesn't mean that you can't have electrolytes. It doesn't mean that you can't have you know branched amino acids to prevent you know that muscle breakdown. It's it's strategically applying the carbs. Uh, so there's also other nutrients that you can uh, have during those fasted se- uh, sessions that will not shift your metabolism towards, you know, burning carbs and still allow you to, you know, to, uh, to utilize uh, uh, your fat, but not have that cognitive impairment that sometimes happens. Yeah, yeah. So you're still nourishing the body. In a way. And again, it's about longevity, right? Right. So, so doing it too frequently, doing it, mm-hmm. you know, on days that you uh, that you might have a hard session, you putting yourself at risk for injury, for never replenishing those stores, um, especially if you you know train consecutively. It's or sometimes twice a day. It's extremely hard to you know to 
uh, to replenish when you're restricting. And that minds, I think the mindset goes to when you're trying to do a fasted, because I've tried this fasted, yep. and then do a hard treadmill session. <laughs> oh. And then, and then you come <laughs> yeah. up and you're like all energized because yeah. you just, you know, you went out. But then you get that depletion. You just feel yeah. um, that mental breakdown. And if you don't fuel up right away, because that first meal you have in a fasted state should be a real quality nutrient dense meal meal yeah right not a hamburger or (laughs) fast food which most people do you can say most people but a lot of people do try it out and they're like well i deserve it because i haven't had anything yeah it's a deserve it thing (laughs) yeah no no you deserve to treat your body with a lot of good nutrients right now right it's the opposite i think just changing that mindset of you know that the reward um you you know by putting junk in after you worked out for you know for let's say two three hours or sometimes longer you know to some people putting junk in means reward to me it means damage right yeah it's so punish- how do we, it's yeah. punishment yeah it's like you just worked out so hard you took two steps forward towards making yourself a better you and now you just ruined that by you know putting junk in your body yeah that's 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 that space that's that mindset space that they have enough they have that choice it's like and we talk about it when you when you begin to slow things down whether it's a meditation practice or yoga or just being quiet mindful yeah Yeah. your space grows bigger so you can get into that gap and be like well is this actually the thing that is going to help me move towards a faster Race. Well, you know, you think about like what's, you know, what exercise, you know, a heart session does to your body, but it's under a lot of stress, right? So during st- stressful moment, we don't always make great choices. <laughs> so the, the, my number one rule is when I finished, you know, a heart session, never go grocery shopping because oh, no. No. I either end up with way too much stuff. <laughs> Even stuff that is really good, like what was I thinking? <laughs> to, to you know, so planning becomes really important. Like when you finish a session, making sure that you already have something. Like I always have my recovery drink, you know, ready to go, so then I can down that and start making better decisions. <laughs> right. <laughs> right after that, even feed, like yeah, yeah. Feed, feed the, the brain, mind, yeah. feed the body, and then you and can, then, like BJ said, you can be in that gap, and you can correct. make make good quality decisions and we're all in our 40s right Right. so it's a lot easier I think when I was in my 20s and 30s it was like go hammer it hard and then go to the brew place across the street hammer some beers beers, and french fries and now I'm like I wouldn't think about that at all because I'm like this is a temple so I always have a green juice you know after a race I'll put that down first and take the BCAAs afterwards and start getting the body recovered because I want this thing to be moving in 40 years. Right. Yeah. You want to make sure that you get up the next morning and you can actually enjoy, you know, what do you love doing versus hurting, right? Right. You're right. In the the 20s, you're a lot more resilient. And as a, you know, as a, as someone who is in their 40s as well, you know, I've in the last, you know, 10 years in a decade, I definitely have made some conscious decisions about recovery and how critical recovery is. Um, and, you know, it really, you know, comes down to, you know, to treating yourself with respect. Um, because if you do want to do this 40, 50 years from now, and I do very much so as well, uh, it's worth investing and in planning a little bit and making good choices. And, and you know, it's 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 going to take time, I think, to to really change that mindset. 
of, you know, of uh, a lot of athletes where you shouldn't feel bad by, ma by making, you know, that good choice. Like the worst thing is, you know, people making you feel bad because you went for the nutritious food versus the junk food. Right. Like, no, you don't yeah. understand. Get a new wanna, group of friends. Yeah. <laughs> I so want to be doing this, you know, 50 years from now. Yeah. Um, and I want to not just do it, but actually feel good doing it. Right? right. So that's the difference about just, you know, longevity is not about just being there 50 years from now and still doing it. It's about feeling good doing it, doing it in a healthful way. Yes, li living um, in a way that feels good where you're still excited to get up and, and everything's <laughs> mobile. Um, yeah. So speaking of longevity, let's shift it a little bit to actual physical training, right? Yeah. Because that's obviously a huge part of this. Now you trained with Jack Daniels, was your coach for a long time, like a, a decade, time, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's a legend. He's a legend. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's my hero. You know, yeah. when I think of people that, uh, you know, that uh, I, I physically, you know, when I, every time I see him, you know, he, I can still go on a run with him. You know, he's got his own little formula of what works, but, you know, he's uh, 86. Just talked to him on the phone a couple of days ago and, um, you know, he can, he can still do his run, walk, run, walk, and he looks good doing it, like his mechanics, his form, and, um, and, you know, when I think of him, I'm like, wow, you know, he, he's, he's the, the person in my life that has <clears throat> installed the, the kind of passion and love for, uh, for the sport, um, in a very unique way. It was never, get your results at any cost it was how do you develop your body for the long run for the long haul so you can do this you know when you I used to say when you're my age <laughs> you know it's 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 that progression where you're respecting that developmental process uh, versus too much too soon breaking down and eventually walking away from the sport because you're so broken down so it sounds like you're talking about patience patience yes and sometimes you know sometimes you have to slow down to you know go to faster. go faster to go further and um you know he would be the first one sometimes in my training to tell me you're not ready for this like emotionally you might be ready but physically you gotta pay your dues you're gonna spend more time doing this type of work before or this type of mileage um, you know, I was really eager to, you know, to, to improve, uh, quick and he would always put the brakes on and he's like, no, you know, you, you need to slow down a little bit. Um, there's, there's no reason to do this much this soon. You'll get there. Your body will be ready. And, you know, a decade later, I've realized that this is, this is the reason why I'm still running. This is the, you know, if you, I look at some of, you know, either my friends um, that I ran with in college or post-college or competitors, a lot of them have moved on um, from the sport. And that's, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the reason why, one of the reasons why I entered trail running and ultra running, you know, after my road days was... Well, because A, I knew that I wasn't done yet, you know, with, with, with running, that I, um, I had that mentality of, you know, doing it for 
you know, for the rest of my life because of the lessons I've learned from Jack Daniels, because of, you know, understanding how important nutrition is and fueling me um, and that it can be done in a way that is responsible and it supports that longevity goal. Um, yeah. and, and that you don't have to feel deprived, yeah. right? So uh-huh. it's, yeah, yeah <clears throat> I don't feel deprived at all when I slam down my recovery drink in the car, you know, <laughs> on the way to go grab a smoothie. I, right. I, I don't feel deprived at all. It's just, um, you know, it's like the better it gets, the better it gets. So you're putting good fuel in your body. Your body's going to feel good. And as humans, like, we're hard, we're literally hardwired to be comfortable and to feel good. Right. So if we just kind of take that, make that first choice and keep some momentum and, um, you know, we're going to continue to make those choices that feel good. Like there's no other way for us now. Well, you think of like how we as endurance athletes improve is like consistency, right? You stay consistent and patient, you put in the work. And I think that, you know, with, again, we're, we're kind of just hinting on like, you know, there's no shortcuts, right? You, you, you gotta, you gotta eat the right things at the right time. So you feel good. So you can get up the next morning and do it all over again a week after week, a month after month, a year after year. And that's how you get better as an endurance athlete is putting those blocks and years together, uh, consistent without huge breakdowns, you know, whether it's injuries or just, you know, emotionally being um, burnt out and having to walk away for a year or two. Um, but it's building that consistency, you know, throughout years. And um, yeah, that's how we get better. What can you say about, your relationship with Jack as far as being with him for so long as a coach because yeah. what we experience you know people jumping around and you know maybe this is the the next big thing or this is the next thing what what do you think is the is a good formula or a mindset to have that kept you so engaged for that long with one what coach, coach? yeah that's a it's a really good question you know I think that <clears throat> I've thought about it many different times that, you know, there were different opportunities throughout the years for me to, you know, join maybe different groups and train with people. Um, and at the end, I think Jack was just the right fit for me. He just personality wise, you know, he was a scientist. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed knowing the why behind each workout. Um, you know, to him, you know, he, he was able to articulate the vision to me, what it could look like down the years. And it really, you know, was up to me to buy into the system and stick with it. Um, was that hard for you? It wasn't. Okay. I mean, he was, you know, and, you know, he, Jack is not this like, rah, rah, you know, inspirational, <laughs> you know, just, you know, like a motivator, but he's got incredible stories and, he is, you know, you just sense that passion of, uh, um, you know, just like uh, Dr. Vaughn, you know, like with nutrition, you know, those are two, you know, two men in my life that um, just made a tremendous impact on, you know, why I love, uh, you know, science, nutrition, as well as, uh, you know, coaching. Um, and there was, I think what they have in common uh, is that passion for what they do. And that was just contagious. And, you know, I always like wanted to get to the next level so I can learn a little bit more when I was ready. Um, 
and you know at uh, at kind of at the end of my you know relationship with you know with with Jack Daniels when we were kind of you know we knew we were approaching like the end of the marathon days it became a lot more collaborative so our relationship matured um, and I had a lot more input into my training he learned so much about me and what I didn't like <laughs> and certain workouts caused me more anxiety than others and how to you know how to he always believed that you know, there's not one way of getting from point A to point B and that there were many ways to get the same result. Um, you know, if, so yeah, he was creative. He was uh, creative and um, every year was not the same. I think that, you know, after, you know, 10, 10 years, he was still able to put a twist on my <laughs> schedule. I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> you want me to, I've never done this before. <laughs> so... <clears throat> But it was also nice to have, you know, some of the, you know, piece of pr predictability too, that I knew that from year to year, there were certain workouts that we always had in the plan that I could, you know, look back, say, you know what, I remember when I couldn't do this. So whatever we're doing, it's working because I'm getting better. And that alone, when you can see that you're getting better, it it keeps you hungry for, you know, for more. And it just validates that, you know, there's progression happening and it's fun to, it's easy to stay. Um, and, you know, you always wonder like, what if, you know, I did something else, but, you know, I, I think that it really worked out for me because I made tremendous, tremendous breakthroughs, you know, under, you know, under Jack and, um, I'm still applying a lot of it now, even when I'm training for the ultra uh, trail events. And, you know, him and I talk about, you know, some of the races that I do. And he just kind of shakes his head. Then <laughs> it's like, what do you mean you ran for 24 hours straight? <laughs> so it's kind of fun. There she is, folks, Magdalena Boulay, the sweetest badass you'll ever know. What a world of wisdom she is and so generous to share it with us. And speaking of badasses and sharing, our next guest from YTP episode 160 brings it all into message for us. Kristen Mayer, founder of Betty Designs, opens up about one of the most difficult times in her life and how the beautiful art that is her career blossomed from it. It's inevitable. Life will break your heart. But there is always a way. And sometimes, like for Kristen, it was just taking the next breath. Since its inception in 2010, Kristen has grown Betty Designs into one of the most recognizable brands in the endurance sports world. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at Canyon Bikes North American headquarters here in Carlsbad. In this clip, we begin talking about Kristen's experience at the annual Belgian Waffle Ride produced by YTP guest and creative disruptor Michael Marks. The BWR attracts a fanatical crowd from all over the world. Known for its dirty nature, sick elevation, and technical riding, this Euro-style spring classic is the only one of its kind on U.S. soil. I love this episode and this woman. So as Kristen would say, you guys, let's throw on a bib number and hit it. We got on the dirt and it was, I call myself Granny Mayor. I mean, it is hands on the brakes <laughs> and the wrong brake and the rear wheels skidding out and tears are in my eyes, and my foot comes out of the, out of the pedal, and I'm one-legging it on a tiny incline. It's a 1% grade. So that's how it started. <laughs> and I, and, but the interesting thing about me is 
Um, when I do put a race bib number on, even though I'm not trying to like place an erase, there's something that happens to me and I kind of, I get that fire and I get that commit, it's like the commitment goes into overload and I just have to get to the finish line. We, yeah, we had Scotty and Carrie on here, here at Canyon and Scotty is a trainer and Carrie's a racer. I'm a race. I was so always I a racer. Like you're a racer. Even though I'm not racing anymore, technically, that was my thing. I'd much rather put the bib number on mm. and go hit it. Yeah. Something happens to me. I get so excited mm -hmm. and scared, but I love that. So excitement and fear come from the same part of the for me the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The body yeah. can't tell the difference. It's just how you relate. So to they it. really can't tell the difference. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it, it have a, the same physiological reaction in the body as fear and excitement. So. Yeah. If you practice fear, if you live a fearful life, if you're a warrior and you're feeling that, you can change the lingo and decide that you're gonna, just going to be excited because your body's not going to change in the way that it feels, yep. but the words that you use around it will, will change and then your perspective about it will shift you know, significantly. So what does training look like? Now you're, now you're with the, the big guns. You are a big gun there in all white. You always wear white, which I, I always love. wear white. Because yeah. it's funny. Yeah. Because you should. Because it's, like, it's like the dirtiest race. Who wears white for a dirt event? I mean, honestly, <laughs> to be out there all day and it's 90 degrees sometimes out in Ramona and you're disgusting when you finish. <laughs> Wear white. Why not? What does training look like for that? Like, what did your training for this year look like? Because you keep, like, ticking off the time. Like, you're taking chunks out of your time year after year. So, well, like I said, I started in a pretty grim space in terms of my abilities and, um... It's like anything, I hired my old tri-coach every year because for me, I like the structure of knowing what I should do. Um, I also can't handle as much training as a lot of my peers. So for me, being told what to do and when to rest works well for me. I don't have to think about it, but I love to go out and do it and I trust him. He worked with me for almost 18 years on the tri side. He knows me really well. And so when I started doing this, I, was, I didn't know anything about endurance riding. I'd never ridden a bike. I mean, I think back in triathlon days, I maybe rode 70 miles a week on a big mm -hmm. week. So how, did, how would I do this? And he just broke it down. Um, and that's, that's what we did. And every year we've done a little more volume. Like, how much more volume can I do? Because for me, I'm never going to be fast out there. That's never my intent or my goal is to see, like, who I can beat. It's more about me. Can I be better every year on the day? Can I be a little less fearful? Can I... <sighs> You know, when I reach that dark place at mile 90 that I always hit at coming out of Bandy Canyon, can I overcome that? Um, and that's a really big piece of it for me, and that's, to me, achieving something. So every year I go back because I just want to do better. And when I, I kind of stopped triathlon for a couple reasons, but one of it was I felt like I had sort of done everything I could in some ways. So this is like a new challenge. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no race like this. Yeah. So I love how, you know, I was saying like you're taking chunks off your time, but you kind of shifted to the more important metrics, which is like, can I be a little less fearful? Yeah. Can I be a little less dramatic coming out of mm -hmm. Bandy Canyon? And mm -hmm. so are you finding that you're being, that you're fine tuning the mental game there or? I definitely, this year was probably the biggest shift mentally in terms of less fear. I mean, Black Canyon was horrible. It was really deep, um, loose sand, and it was definitely, I was horrifically slow in that segment, and it was scary, but not scary at the level it was the first year I did the race. Different kind of scary. Um, and then that Bandy Canyon, 
section has always been my nemesis. And I said to my husband, this year when we come off the dirt there and we go up the 2K climb on the road, I'm not melting down and having, I'm, I'm not having a mental breakdown. I'm not going to say, because I always get there and I feel dead and I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to finish? And I said, this year I'm not doing that. I'm going to overcome that place. I didn't even know, I was so excited this year. It was so interesting. So I don't know why that is. Well, you're, it might you're, just been the mindset. Vocalized that. Your yeah, mindset. You, you yeah. vocalized. You set yeah. the intention. You said there's no way. And it just seems. Yeah. And there in, were hard parts during the day. But that was my one place I hit every year. And this year, nope. But I think you nailed it. I mean, you set the intention. So I think, I think there's like this uh, misconception with the mental game that it's going to be like in the moment. In the moment, I'm going to be better coming out of Bandy Canyon. Yeah. But you had already done the work mm -hmm. to set yourself up for success because you decided that you weren't going to be that way this year. Yeah. So then what happens is like that starts to get programmed because you're, you're practicing it, you're mm -hmm. talking to Matt about it, mm -hmm. and you're reprogramming. It's so easy. Like we yeah. reprogram our subconscious. Now you've overridden those old patterns, and you came springing out of Bandon Canyon yeah. feeling good and excited. And so now you've got momentum there, and you can continue doing that every year. Now you need to find well, something else. I need to find something else, or yeah. I have to have my husband allow me to do this again next year, which is another topic for another day. <laughs> he says he's done. <laughs> do you guys train together? We do. We do a lot of training together. Yeah. Yeah, he's very patient. He waits a lot. <laughs> yeah. So does mine. <laughs> so what advice would you have for somebody who's, who's looking to do BWR or something that's really off the charts like this, like a bike race that's like dirt and road and that you have to really be like an everything cyclist to do? So I think the number one thing is, do you really want to do it? Because mm -hmm. I believe if you really, really want to do it, then you can do it. Um, and I think that from even now to this day, I mean, if you go mountain bike with me, I'm really not great. So. Um, people will say, you know, I can't believe you do that, and something just happens, and I think it's also just breaking it down into little pieces, mm -hmm. and, you know, even in the training, there was, uh, we were doing this one segment called Lemon Twist that's a really technical single track, and I did it a bunch of times this year, and like, I think it was 10 days out from the event, we went out, and I, we put our race tires on, and I absolutely had a meltdown that day out there. I took my foot out twice. I hadn't done it all year. And I was like, what is going on with me? But it's, it's those little things of just kind of keeping at it. And so I think you have to want it. And I think that in knowing that I can do it, I think, I think it's like an Iron Man. I think, honestly, if you want to do it, you can do it. Yeah. I really do. I think you definitely have to want, we were actually just watching the Jobs, the Steve Job, Jobs movie last night, and I love this line for it when he's, um, they're, they're, they're assembling the Mac team, and he says to them, like, you have to have passion for what you're doing, like, you have to want it, because if you don't, then you're not going to have what it takes to persevere, like, yep. you're not going to persevere to the end, yep. so you've got to want it, yep. and then you'll do what it takes. You'll do what it takes. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about doing what it takes. Um, because the BWR is not the biggest challenge you've had in your life. And so nope. to the gratitude of many, many badass women out there, Betty Designs was really born from one of the toughest times in your life. And so can you just let, take us through that story right from the nitty gritty beginning? You want the nitty gritty, huh? Oh, we want it oh, all, boy. girlfriend. Well, all I'm, all I'm going to say is so there's a very finite moment where that switch was flipped. And it was literally, and I might cry. 
Matt, you said she was going to cry. He said, guarantee. He loves cry. it. <laughs> so, cry. you know, basically, I was married for almost 14 years. I had a six-year-old. And you think, okay, marriage is tough. You know, you're grumpy with each other and this and that. But I always thought, and especially watching my parents, you know, you have arguments and things, you stay together. And so I thought I was going to be with this person who is the father of my son my entire life. And one, you know, things have been sort of been, you know, weren't awesome, but I, I didn't think much about it. And finally one day I just said to him, I said, you know, I said, what's going on? You seem extra grumpy. And you just seem like you're just not, you don't want to be here. And I remember it was one in the afternoon on a Monday. I think it must have been some sort of holiday. He was home from work. I worked from home. And I was in my bathrobe at one in the afternoon, which is common. But I, because um, I work at home. <laughs> I said, you just don't seem interested. And he just deadpanned me in the eye and he said, I'm not. I don't love you and this isn't the life I want anymore. And it was like, excuse me? Um, it was rough. Because I was in shock. And I said, I said, what do you, are you serious? Yep. And it was plain as day. It was just like, hey, I'd like a burger, you know? And um, it was what it was. But it, that was it. It floored me. I was done. Yeah. So when we, we had um, met last week and we had shared some time having some coffee and getting to know each other a little bit better and, and so you had told this story to us and then you told us like for the next, was it three weeks or three months, like that you were still sharing the same space, but you realized like this, this I, I gotta, like I gotta move on, right? Like you've gotta yeah. start living. Yeah. I mean, was, that must have been hell. It was really hard. It was really hard. He was relieved, and I wasn't angry at him, I just didn't understand. It was really not understanding, and I was very hurt, as you can imagine. And he was there for a while longer, and I finally just said, you know, you gotta, you gotta move out, because I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do. I was literally in a ball. So it was one little thing at a time. He moved out, and it was day by day, hour, sometimes it was hour by hour, sometimes it was minute by minute. Because all I could think of, the thing that came in my head, what was I going to do? I mean, yes, I was raised to be an independent female, but I never thought I'd be faced with that. And I wasn't helpless, but I felt helpless. Mm. So what, how do I even get out of bed the next day? How do, I, how do I get up without having this person there that's been there for that long? I didn't know what that looked like. Mm -hmm. But how do I, in all this hurt, stay strong for my son? Because mm -hmm. that was really the most important thing, because I have to do this for him. Not only for me, but for him, because we're going to go on. That was the big one. So you were a graphic designer at the time. Yep. And you had been doing some custom stuff. Mm -hmm. But now you had a mortgage to pay. Yep. I mean, everything was now 100% you. Yep. And nobody else was going to do it but you. Um, so when does Betty start to come into fruition? Like, when does she start to rise up? So it really happened about six months later. Um, a friend of mine that rode bikes, ironically, <laughs> um, introduced me to a guy that rode bikes. And he's in the room tonight. Um, and we met on a group date, um, date if you will. It wasn't really a date, as both of us will attest to. It was pretty comical. But we met, and, and he's, um, it's Matt. He's here in the room. And he's the most intelligent man I've ever met in my entire life. And he sat there. 
he thought I was absolutely batshit crazy because I was crying, I had a kid, I had an ex-husband, I had an ex-little boyfriend in between. He was like, oh my God. And you're supposed, this is supposed to be like a date? It was kind of a date, group date. We went out, we went out <laughs> again great. for a sandwich and it was like, I don't know, we were talking. He was a very smart businessman and, and we weren't dating at the time. He became a very good friend and he, he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? Because I was lamenting about what am I going to do for work? Because I turned down a couple of corporate jobs. I didn't want to leave the house with my son at home. It was very important for me that I drove him to school. I picked mm -hmm. him up. I was there if he needed me in the middle of the day. Whatever it was, it was baseball practice. I was not missing it. I refused. So he said, well, you seem pretty talented. Why don't you start your own company? Why don't you start your own clothing line? And I just start crying as usual, because that's what I did in those days. I'm crying. And the words that came out of my mouth were, I can't compete with Nike. I have no money and I can't compete with Nike. You went right to the biggest I went right to the, brand. yeah. <laughs> and he just looks at me and he's laughing. What are you talking about, crazy person? I'm like, yeah. I, I mean, it, it seemed like the most silly suggestion to me, because like you said, I didn't look at it from like, oh, what could I do to possibly do this? It was how do I get to success, right? And the biggest success I can think of was Nike. They're the biggest sports brand in the world and I've always admired them. So how do I get to that? That's ridiculous. But the fact that that's planted in your brain that right. you know that that is the top shows that it's already inside you. So maybe Nike isn't the best competitor for what you're doing, <laughs> but it shows that you have the... The big goals. Yeah, so you have that inside of you to create something of your own that can be at the top of its level whatever that environment is well, so you already saw that nike yeah it just didn't it didn't register it just, with anything right. to me it had nothing to do with me it was like so foreign it was like what are you talking about i'm this little designer that sits in my bathrobe in my house <laughs> they don't do that at nike <laughs> they don't do that at nike so then what was the next step like when did it how did it go from that to actually starting to happen so the what really happened was he obviously planted the seed that mm -hmm. day and he said well you don't you don't do that he goes so um, do you know how to get a jersey made? I said, well, of course I know how to get a jersey made. I said, I do custom work all the time and I've made my own stuff for my own racing. And he said, okay. And I, I said, but I don't have any money. I said, I'm not getting investors. It was immediately like, I was in this place where I didn't want any debt. I owed my dad some money. He was helping float me my, um, on my mortgage. I had taken in a couple tenants because I was in a pretty big house that I shouldn't have been in. And um, so I'm not taking on any more debt. And he said, well, what do you have? What can you afford? I said, I don't probably afford 20 jerseys. He goes, well, do you know anyone who can do that for you? And I said, I think so. I'm going to go knock on the door at Squadra up in Vista. And I'm going to see. I've worked with them before, and maybe, you know, they'll do this for me. But I really want my own zipper pulls and tags. I was very specific about that. So I went up there, and I just I worked with them, and I just said, hey, you know what, you guys? I want to make 30 jerseys. So that's how it started. And they said, yes, they would do it for me if I paid for the zipper pulls and the tags that were going to cost me some extra. So Matt says to me, I, he says, well, I'll lend you some money. Oh, no. Okay, first of all, we're not dating. <laughs> I'm not owing you anything, smart man. Super geek. Like, I don't even know who you are. You don't like kids. Like, no, 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 no. We're not, I'm not taking any money from you. So he says, he's a, he's a veterinarian radiologist. So he says, well, listen. I write books sometimes, so I have a book project I want to work on. I want to work on a dog breed book. This is a true story. So I say, he goes, I know you come from like magazine layouts. He goes, I go, I love laying out multi-page things. Like that's the best thing ever. I go, 
He goes, well, can I hire you to lay out this book? And I go, of course. And he goes, well, it's this pretty big book. It's going to be like 100 pages. How much would you charge me? So I came up with my estimate. I said, five grand. And he goes, so now I know this. I guess he gulped because he was like, that was more than I was bargaining for. And he goes, he's like, that's more than I was going to let her borrow. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was more like, this is a, this is a flipping expensive book, right? <laughs> like, I thought she was going to charge me like a thousand. So he says, now I really got it. He's thinking to himself, I know the story now. So he pays me up front, and I said, I felt really uncomfortable about it. And again, we still aren't dating, we're just friends. Feel really uncomfortable, but I said, all right, I take the money, and he sends me like a payment schedule, because if any of you know Matt, he's very like, you know, right brain oriented. <laughs> so he makes me a spreadsheet of payments, methodically, that he thinks I can manage. Yes, you should be laughing, Noel, over time. And I panic when I see the payment plan, because I'm like, he thought it'd take me like six months to do this book. Well, I knocked the friggin' book out in two weeks. I'm like, here you go. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you gave me $5,000. I've been freaking out about it. I owe you the work. So the book got done. Fastest book in history? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> I paid Matt back with book layout. <laughs> That's awesome. So we have a little self-published dog breed book <laughs> is it available on amazon it was i need we need to get it back up there yeah. it's actually a pretty funny book um but anyway that's really that was the seed money so that allowed me to buy some additional jerseys and shorts and a couple things so that's really how it started and i put up a wordpress website and i had line art we didn't even have photography and it was really methodically one thing at a time one challenge right in front of me at the time because that was all I could handle that was where my life was in that moment um, but it actually makes for a great um, building a business I know that now I didn't it didn't make sense in the moment but I know that now that's the best way to start a business I think because you were methodical and you were just yeah. focused on what it was in front of you yeah. so you were making sure that like, you weren't yeah because you were like I might not get to the next step right correct yeah. I had to be smart about where I was in that moment in my life in my personal life and in, in starting this business. Do you feel like there was a part of you, like I know you know, you didn't want to borrow money, you didn't want to get investors, but do you feel like there was a part of you that was like fearful to rely on somebody again? Absolutely. I, um, because that's all I did was I, I always, I made an assumption that who you marry was there forever. And I knew people got divorced, but I just, I didn't want to have to rely on anyone. And it's funny because I, gone through periods I remember being very stubborn as a child so it's definitely in there with me where I've gone through that and I felt like I'd really let my guard down and become vulnerable and and that I was not going to do that again it was me I needed to do this for me and my son Gavin and that was it so how'd you sell the jerseys what was the plan the plan the plan was literally <laughs> I'm going to make 30 jerseys and if I sell them I'll make more but um it was around Iron Man in Hawaii time in October, and um, I used to go there um, almost every year. I raced in 98, but I went back every year after that in some capacity. I would sell my soul to people like Zoot, and I'd say, hey, you guys, if you will give me a floor space and fly me there, I'll stand in your booth for a week, because I loved it there. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did, so I couldn't miss it, but I couldn't afford to go. So I actually don't remember how I got there, but I had a backpack of jerseys on me. And I got to Kona, and I, you know, I knew a lot of people just from being there year, year after year, and the triathlon community, as we all know, is very small, and I put a jersey on, and I walked through town, which in Kona, you can walk around in a Speedo, so it doesn't really matter what you're wearing. You look like a tri-geek no matter what, so 
I had my cycling jersey on with my big logo, and it was like, I'm going to walk around in it, and I'm going to see if anyone talks to me about it. Because I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. And I, I remember it was the first couple hours I was in town. I walked by this little strip of shops, and this woman came running out of her shop. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And she grabbed me, and she's like, what are you wearing? What is that? I said, oh, I was really meek. I was like a little bit nervous. I was like, well, I designed this jersey, you know, in this little voice. And she's like, do you have any more in that pack? And I said, sure. Can I, well, come into my shop. So I, she brings me in the little bike shop, and she looks at it, and she's like, I want 15 of them right now. What will you sell them to me for? And I hadn't even thought about it. I was like. Well, that wasn't the next step? No. You there, you're not there yet. I wasn't there <laughs> you, yet. you got these jerseys, these 30 so you need to unload. I was like, okay. You're like, where's Matt in his spreadsheet? <laughs> I was like, there's no spreadsheet. So, I mean, I literally, you know, I knew what I paid for them. I don't even know what I sold them to her for, but I remember she took 15 jerseys off my hands, and you know, five days later after being in town and people seeing this logo and this jersey and just talking to me about it, saying, oh, that's really cute, where'd you get it or what is that? I had I'd emptied my backpack. You just never know. We just never know what's possible when we take the next logical step. And it doesn't have to come to the toughest moments of our life to start following our hearts, you guys, and creating what is being held there. I love Kristen. I love what she's created and is creating every day. You better believe we are out there cheering on her squad of Bettys every chance we get. Okay, next up is Jerry Rodriguez of YTP episode 169. Jerry is founder of Tower 26. He is the co-host of the Be Race Ready podcast and creator of the famed Tower 26 open water beach swim in Santa Monica. He's been a swimmer for over 50 years. He is the holder of over 100 open water swim titles, and he is leading the charge on educating and training athletes who are swimming for triathlon. We caught up with Jerry at his home in LA, and we drop in with BJ and Jerry talking about that morning's workout. From there, Jerry shares his background and mental strategies for performance. This little snippet and this entire full episode needs to have re-listen after re-listen. This is a great time of year, athletes. Moving into your base phase of training, go back, listen to this entire episode, 169. But hopefully this 20 or so minutes will tide you over for now. If you went too fast too soon, earlier on, you wouldn't be able to finish that workout because that was a pretty demanding session, right? Yeah, and you didn't reveal the full session to us at the start. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, you kind of kept us, like, I mean, we know, I, I know as a, as part of your program, like, I know that the tasty stuff comes at the end. Like, you need a warm-up. Like, you need to really get warmed up. Right. So to have that, that I guess it's like your own, your, your confidence, right? Your check the ego, right? This is just, he's that's just asked us to have three easy loops. Am I really going easy today? Am I easy today? Well, I'm trying to get them to be engaged with, with, with the prescription that's being handed out as opposed to getting carried away into their own uh, personal need, perhaps. Um, I'm the coach, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the one that knows, uh, at the risk of sounding a little arrogant here, probably more than all of those people added together. So go with the program and you'll make improvements. Do your well, own thing and then you kind of blow the purpose of the session. That, I mean, in what you're talking about there is trust, right? Trust, trusting, trusting the plan, like the big plan, right. but trusting every individual workout. Correct. And that, um, that it all has a purpose. And especially when we're talking about swimming, as we've already discussed, 
that it's you know a very small amount of time that somebody has that each workout is very purposeful and so execute it as described and you will receive the benefit but we get in the way right i, I think so that's how it should be but at the same time <laughs> the, the athlete has to have trust in in the coach so i have to earn that trust and i recognize that takes time um, but once that trust is earned then you know stay in the program there's there's, there's a level of collaboration also obviously with athletes um, and but you have to earn that collaboration if you don't have a background the collaboration is a hundred to zero because the coach knows and you don't and then over time the ratio shifts you know you start gaining 10 percent then it's 90 10 then it's 80 20 whatever it may be but you have to earn the right for the collaboration especially if you don't have any sort of background if michael phelps showed up well it's still going to start almost 100 to zero because he doesn't have open water experience but he has a whole lot of swimming experience and pretty quick he'll gather the tools and then it, the collaboration ends up being much higher how has what what has shaped you as the as a as an athlete so where have you come from in your you know your early years in swimming who was maybe who was your mentor or how did you fail and learn from from maybe some other coaches that, that brought you to this point, to your philosophy? Or was it all just your experience, personal experience? Uh, so I was, I have a, a terrific family and my parents were super involved in, in my swimming as a kid growing up. And I started at a young age at seven. And my dad came to every single practice and didn't get involved with any of the politics that goes on with the sport or he just stayed away, sat in the bleachers, looked at the workouts and always had sort of these little pearls of wisdom along the way to, to, to hand out. And, um, and I learned over time that paying attention and trusting your coach, it's no different than your, your partner your, in your relationship. You have to trust your partner. That builds a stronger relationship. So I gave, I showed up, I, was, I learned to be fully present and to give. And you, you give and you ultimately receive, right, over time. So, plus I wasn't the most talented athlete. So for me, I felt I always had to have a higher frequency, don't miss, work harder, all those types of things, because I wasn't the most talented athlete by any means. Um, but I think that engagement and, and learning that from a little kid to be fully engaged was super, super helpful. And then we started swimming uh, at a coach, uh, my first coach was very, uh, I'd say, sort of forward thinking because we're talking about the, excuse the time frame here, but we're talking about the end of the 60s and early 70s, okay? He, he had a swimming in open water uh, three times a week, four months a year. Uh, so I swam at the beach Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, and then Sundays. Uh, so that's four times a week, I guess, uh, for several months for, for a particular open water race that we had. And started doing that from nine or ten years old. Uh, so acquired lots of skills and um and then it was sort of my thing everyone ends up being sort of an event that's theirs that was a little bit more i was more comfortable in it and so on and then it was a matter of learning as much as i could and if i wanted to race really well how do i race against the guys that are so much faster than me in the pool so for me it was a lot of self-taught well there are a certain bunch of skills in open water that those guys that i didn't have in the pool but I'm learning them in open water, so let me make sure I learn those really, really well, and that could make up for some differences in how much they're beating me in the swimming pool. Because once you get into the open water, different rules. There's drafting. It's a chess game, okay? Mm -hmm. It's a how good could you play chess? So for me, it was, okay, let me identify the skills that are needed. How can I uh, 
cover up my warts, so to speak, and then really acquire a set of tools and skills that are indigenous to the environment that we're in that none of these other guys have because they're all training in the pool, thinking that you can just show up in open water and do really well. Well, not so much. So I was able to race at a fairly competitive level or quite competitive level with relatively not, I wasn't a great swimmer, I was an okay pool swimmer, but in open water, badass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm joking yeah. by saying that, but you know. No, yeah. you um, should own that for sure. I'm assuming you experienced times of doubt as a as you were growing up and, and in competition. And what is your experience with with just that relationship with doubt? Is it helpful? How do you get to the other side of it? We all experience it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I, I, I sort of went to the antidote and, and, and thought, you know, these, these things enter my mind. And, and I always came back to, well, you know what? You did this, this, and this in workout. Or you did that, that, and that. So why are you letting these thoughts come into to your mind? And as silly as this seems, I, I remember uh, maybe 20 years ago when there was a period of high doubt. <laughs> this is crazy. I've never really talked about this. But I would recite my resume to myself. You know, I go, you know what? You grew up in a third world country. You got a chance to come to America. Not many people have that opportunity. You got yourself through school. You, you your family, you, you have, they did the best they could to help you get here. You're here now. And, and look what you've done. You've made it through the system. Uh, you had no friends or family in, in the United States. You started at 16 years old. How many 16-year-olds do that? And, and, and it's not necessarily a big deal, but... Those are the hurdles that many people might think, uh, you know, oh, wow. Well, that was my normal. But that also takes some, you know, you've got to have some kahunas to do that, too. Mm -hmm. So I'd just go, okay, hey, you left Trinidad, that third world place at 16. You came here. You did it on your own. You did this. You did that. You kept going. So I'd recite. And what you're really doing is putting the positive things into your container, right? Into your, the checkup from the neck up, right? You're putting the positive things in and trying to outflow those negative doubts that you talked about that entered, which, which are normal. So my teaching tool now for that is, I call it the three-second rule, when, those, when those, the good wolf and the bad wolf story, when, when they, you know, we, we, we make a decision, when you have negative thor thoughts, the negative thoughts are the bad wolf on your shoulder, and the positive thoughts are the good wolf on the other shoulder. Well, the wolf that wins is the wolf you feed. So if you feed the negative wolf, give it more negative thoughts, well, that becomes strong and the good wolf falls apart. If you feed the good wolf, then that's the one that grows and the negative one falls apart. So the resume citing at that time, I didn't know the good wolf, bad wolf story, but was basically a way of feeding the good wolf, right? So now the message when I talk to our athletes is you got three seconds to eradicate the bad wolf or the negative thoughts. Just give it three seconds to rattle around in there and then you got to kick it out because if it stays longer, it's starting to seed. Okay, it's, it's got a little plant in there and it's starting to bud now. I'm just going to get some flowers. You don't want that to happen, right? And it's normal, by the way. It happens to everybody. It happened to Mark Spitz at the 1972 Olympic Games after he won five gold medals and won five world records and had five world records. In his sixth race, the negative thoughts entered his mind. It happens to everybody. So it's just a matter of recognizing it. Hey, that's, that's normal. We're human, not robots. And now that it enters, what do we do? So we get some tools. 
one of the tools is, okay, let's go into the three-second rule and let's start getting, you know, the, the sexy word is positive affirmations. But what we're really doing is trying to put a stoppage, mm -hmm. a blockage on, on the negative stuff that starts ruminating in there. And boy, it could take over at times, can't it? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the more that that bad wolf gets fed, like you, were, like you said, like now it's got leaves, now it's got flowers. And the other thing that's happening as it's growing up, the roots are getting deeper. Yes. Absolutely. Right? You ever seen those old trees where the, you're like, whoa, look at those roots. And the roots will get deeper and it'll be, it'll be harder not to feed it. So it's three, I love the three seconds, like just give it three seconds. And it's a focus. What you were doing so authentically was that you were focusing on how far you have come. And so that could be the good wolf. And mm -hmm. then the bad wolf is focusing on how far you still have to go. And we have a little bit of this social programming and, and conditioning in, in this society specifically where it, it leans a little bit more to the bad wolf, right? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, um, you know, you need this. You, you, you still have to do this. Like uh, lack, you know, that we kind of grow up in this energy of lack. And we really must, I believe, and, and athletes are, are tailor-made for this because we're, we have so much tenacity that we really need to rise above and, and realize that this is within our power. But that's where training comes in, right? That, that's going to your workouts, having a, a, a good coach like many athletes do, being present, coming back to the original mm -hmm. thing that we started off with, and then doing that with high frequency uh, repetition over a sustained period of time, which is consistency. There's a difference between uh, frequency and consistency. Frequency is number of times per week, as an example, or, or within some time frame, and then consistency is duration over multiple months and years. So you string those together, and that starts planting the stronger roots of the good tree or the good wolf type thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everyone's got both, their thing. Works both ways, right? Sure. The more we feed the good wolf, the more sure. we focus on how far we've come, those roots are going to get deeper. But I think one of the things that for your audience, uh, if it's helpful, certainly it's helpful for me. My wife even helped me with this. Um, the way she coined it, and, and I used it to, to, to use an analogy for our athletes, in every 30-day cycle, because we, we run a calendar, 12 months a year calendar, right? So in every month, we have, a, let's say, 30, we have 30 days. Some days, some months are 28, some are 31, but 30 days. Out of those 30 days, most days are ordinary days. Stuff just moves along. Then you have some really extraordinary days. Two or three of those, it's like, wow, I'm top of the world. You know, I got it nailed. And then you have some really, really crappy days, kind of the bad wolf days. Once we can recognize that that's normal, that's what happens to everybody. It's not unique to you while you're going through it. In fact, your good buddy, he or she might be going through the same thing at the same time, but we have this way of the grass is greener at times, right? Well, it, it, uh, th their stuff just looks great. Well, everybody has brown grass at times. So we all have these little extreme ends, super, super great days, a couple times, a few times a month, super, super crappy days, and a whole bunch of ordinary days. Once we recognize that and go, okay, I'm in one of those crappy days right now, so I just got to use my tools that I've learned what to do to help me through these days, knowing that a whole bunch of ordinary ones are coming, and even some extraordinary ones are going to happen. And we just keep a time yeah. frame. All right, here's how it works. I think a lot of, and I think a lot of people give up way too soon for that, consistent, for that consistency over the long period. So they have these ordinary days, they have the bad ones, they have the good ones, but things aren't happening quick enough, according to their timeline. 
perhaps, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's some of that maybe societal or environmental, how they were brought up and so on. But it's once you have mentors or good coaches or good parents, I mean, I think you can help uh, good bosses perhaps at work and help you through those types of things and recognize that it's it's normal stuff. We're it humans. It's normal stuff. It's, yeah. it's, and it's the way that this flow of life works. And one of the things I used to say a lot when we first started this podcast, like I was saying, I used to record intros and everything, and, and um, was that one of the messages that we want to send to the world is that you're not alone. Like, you're not alone. Like, the, the, the doubt that you experience is the doubt that I've experienced, is the doubt that you've experienced. Everybody, right? sure. That, you know, professional triathletes that we have had on the show, that everybody experiences this, and it's just accepting that it's normal. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And then choose what you're going to feed. A little message here. that and from my dad, when I'd go do, do these open water workouts when I was a kid, 10 years old, 11, 12 years old, and all most of they are just the coach had just started with some younger kids we were the young ones right in fact you, you had to be i think you had to be 16 to swim the race and because our coach brought in this young group of us involved they, they had lowered the age to 12 to be able to participate in that race but we so we were training with the 16 year olds okay this group of kids of 10 11 12 years old and um and my dad always said when you're tired and you're fatigued and that's when the negative thoughts are going to enter your mind you, well, he said just remember the guy next to you is just as tired otherwise he wouldn't be next to you he'd be ahead of you and every time i'd go through that thing of man i'm hurting and and i look across and i because it's easier to think that that guy is feeling good but if they were feeling good they wouldn't be next to me they'd be ahead of me so i would turn the thinking around but somebody had to teach me that that was my dad right so you then take that little nugget and you advance it into your into your athletics and into your life and so forth and so on. But somebody needs to teach you those things. Yeah, yeah. So. And you just dropped that little wisdom That's very bomb wise. into yeah, the universe. It's, I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Because that translates to everything too. Like especially sure. on the run. Like when you're just slogging along at the end of the run and you're like, oh my god, this guy's. They look at the number on the calf and they're like, well, this guy's my state my age group, and he's trucking along. But isn't he going the same pace yeah. as but, you? And you can't feel what that person's feeling. I remember I right. used to think that at Ironman, I would be like, my, my body would be in a big world of hurt. And I would look at other bodies, and they just looked like they were moving. But I had to remind myself that most likely they were, they were feeling a very similar level of sensation as to what I was feeling. And it's like, we just have to remember those things. We are more similar than we are different. I, I, point well taken in everything mm -hmm. so all right let's um let's talk about breathing mm -hmm. we've seen people holding their breath um coming to us saying that somebody told them only to breathe every 10 strokes and um don't only breathe to one side breathe to both sides so what's your philosophy on breathing for triathletes so important distinction for triathletes because the information which becomes misinformation that permeates the sport of triathlon has come generally from swim coaches. And in competitive swimming, if you're going to swim the 50-meter freestyle at the Olympic Games, as an example, it's one length of the pool, okay? So the, the guys would line up on the far end and they swim one length, max output, 21 seconds. Women, 24 seconds. The guys will breathe zero to one times and the women will breathe one to two times. And it makes sense because the duration of the event is 20 seconds approximately. 
So if we then took that application that you don't need to breathe often and we brought it into our arena where our athletes are doing a minimum 10, 12 minute swim for a super, super sprint all the way up to two hours for an Ironman, well, that application is nonsensical in this environment. So we have to decide when we hear things, and, and, and many times the athlete doesn't have a filter to know, so you're just listening to the coach. But the coach's duty, his or her job, is to then think about all the things that they were taught as coaches or they read. Do those applications actually apply to the audience that I'm now talking to? And I think that's where we have a, a, a cluster of misinformation in, in triathlon. So breathing with less frequency doesn't have a place in the sport of triathlon, in my opinion. Uh, so how often should we breathe? Every two strokes. So if you're a right-sided breather, you breathe every right side. Every time your right arm comes around. If you're a left-sided breather, you breathe every time your left arm comes around. Now the question becomes, okay, should I breathe on both sides? And well, if you did, then, th then that's breathing every three strokes. Well, that doesn't meet your definition, Jerry. Well, but we still could breathe on both sides. We would just breathe a bunch of times to the right side, five, four, five, six, seven times, and then we'll switch over and breathe four, five, or six, or seven times to the left side. So we still get that balance, which is basically what the coach or athlete's looking for. And it's just another skill. It's another tool to be able to access and breathe on your, let's say, your non-comfort side initially. Uh, but we still want to oxygenate ourselves. I mean, at the end of the day, oxygen is your number one source of fuel. It doesn't matter how many cliff bars, power bars, uh, gel packs, uh, coke you eat, you drink at the end of your race. It doesn't matter. It's all secondary to oxygen. So, and we're not doing a 20 second race. So oxygen is your main source of fuel. So utilize it and don't hold your breath either. You don't hold your breath when you ride your bike and you don't hold your breath while you run. What makes you think you should hold it while you're swimming? Because some coach says it makes you more buoyant is the, is the perhaps advantage, perhaps, and there's no studies to show that there is, of holding your breath outweigh the disadvantage of a carbon dioxide buildup that creates a problem physiologically? Well, no, it's not. So we, we have to look at these applications from the sport of competitive swimming and decide which apply to this particular indigenous sport, this particular segment of swimming. This is one segment, triathlon swimming. Mm -hmm. You have global swimming, elite competitive swimming, master swimming, lap swimming, uh, and this is triathlon swimming. So certain things apply here. And by the way, some of the things that apply here don't apply to competitive swimming in the, in the swimming pool. So you wouldn't breathe every two strokes with a 50-meter freestyle. That wouldn't be sensible, just as you wouldn't hold your breath doing a half Ironman Olympic distance on Ironman swim. I feel that two things. One, when they get to that four strokes or three strokes or five strokes, whatever they're doing, they're comfortable. In my experience, I've seen that they're comfortable. They're, they're comfortably swimming. They're in a nice rhythm. Mm -hmm. Sure. When you begin to add the breathing every two strokes, the, it, auto, it automatically increases the, num the, the amount of times you're lifting your head. Now you're creating some other, other stuff going on with your swim stroke. And so in my experience with working with athletes, it, it raises their heart rate a little bit and it gives them a little bit of anxious energy sure. and anxiety. So what it does, the athlete that breathes less frequently than every two strokes, in your example, every fourth strokes, they're used to taking a big breath and then holding it for a couple of seconds, a few seconds before they take a big breath again. So when you're holding your breath, if we held our breath while running or riding, 
we cannot go at a, at, 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 it, it forces us to reduce our, uh, our output levels. We can't sustain a high performance level if you're holding your breath because oxygen is your main source of fuel, right? So you're forced to reduce effort to sustain this less frequent oxygen uptake. When we then ask the athlete to increase their oxygen uptake, they're not familiar with doing it. So we start with lack of familiarity, which takes adaptation. So there's a period of time that we have to build in for comfort and, and, and have them recognize it's not going to feel comfortably initially. And given that you're in water, and the thing about being in water, obviously, there's the, the anxiety builds up sooner because we can die. I mean, we get right down to it. If you get tired running, guess what? Walk. Get tired riding your bike, coast or get off your bike and walk. Get tired swimming, blah, 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 down to the bottom of the pool. So that fear sets in. So we, we have higher anxiety levels just based on, 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 on the nature of, of the activity. So we have to let the athlete know that this is going to be uncomfortable for a period of time, but ultimately you are increasing your, your opportunity for success for performance. If you want performance, if you just want to breathe every four strokes and have comfort and finish the swim, and that's your goal, then carry on. I would say a daily checkup from the neck up should be going on all of our resolution lists for 2020 and beyond. It, it really is that simple, you guys. Be on high alert for the wolf that you are feeding. And this couldn't be a better lead into our next and final best of clip of 2019. This one is with our yoga teachers, Philip Urso and Renee Deslaurier of YTP episode 171. We recorded this at Rhode Island Power Yoga after BJ and I co-taught a hot power vinyasa class for our Rhode Island community last August. We do that every summer, so stay tuned and perhaps join us next summer. Philip and Renee are co-owners of Live, Love, Teach Yoga Teacher Training School and Rhode Island Power Yoga. They are co-creators of the yoga-based stress reduction educational program, and their goal is to identify a more evidence-based approach to yoga classes. One of the hot topics and core principles of LLT is silence and space meaning the classes are taught without music. Playing music in yoga classes has become a rooted element of modern day yoga, but is it the best for the students? Does it hinder the teacher's ability to teach yoga? And what does it say about the healing of yoga that supposedly we are teaching in the studio? BJ and I are both LLT trained, and it's been a wild ride since arriving in California. After three years, we are now seeing a response in local community build around the cornerstones that allow us to teach yoga, and those students are experiencing shifts in their lives. It's brave work and powerful teaching. Philip is in his fourth semester of graduate level classes at Harvard University, where his work is focusing on the medical and psychological studies on anxiety, yoga, and mindfulness. We dive into this clip with my experience when I walked into Philip's class for the first time and seeing no mirrors and hearing no music. The content of this podcast is not just for people who practice the physical poses of yoga, it's for everyone. So if you skipped over this episode, go back and have a full listen. Until then, enjoy this segment with two curious and courageous teachers. Talk more about this anxiety epidemic that's really holding a lot of people hostage in their life. But uh, when I first walked into No Music, No Mirrors, to Philip's class at Newport Power Yoga um, back in the day, I thought I had just walked into hell. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's always in red. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do? 
So talk about the no music because Philip, you've got a background in this. You used to own radio stations, and um, I've I've watched. Yeah, people think I hate music. Like, I, they, I've they watched just, you have conversations. Me, you just hate music. That's the problem. No, I don't. I was a DJ. I was a, built <laughs> sixteen radio stations. I like. I, that's not the thing. That's not why we don't play music. It's not because so I hate music. Tell us about so why. why you don't play music. If you look at the culture that we're in right now, it's over-entertained. We've mentioned that, right? Entertainment is the problem. People don't know what to do when they don't have entertainment. They don't know what to do. You could say entertainment could be characterized as the drug. So why in the world would a yoga teacher give them the drug? Why would they pl play music in the studio when the music is their problem and the studio's job is to help them help them learn to cope without entertainment how can they that's what we were talking about earlier about silence like our job is to get them so they can be comfortable without anything external if we can do that we've succeeded if we can't do that we've just become more of the problem we've made the problem bigger and the studios that are playing music i they don't like to hear what i say we put up a post in elephant journal we were on our way to Bali, remember? And we landed in Holland, and we got, we got like 265 comments. <laughs> what the hell? That was like in two hours. We put it, we posted it and got on the plane. It was five hours. We were on the plane. And we were like, what the hell just happened? The people were personally attacking us. It was, but it was just hilarious. It was, it was just it's so sensitive. But I remember when I started, I used music, and I had justifications in my head there at the ready. Like, I, I, okay, if somebody asks me why I'm playing music, I'm going to say these are my reasons. But I knew in my heart it really wasn't, it wasn't, I shouldn't be playing music in a yoga class. Well, and also statistically you've shared with us, you know, when you're playing a song, the percentage of people in that room that may enjoy it, the rest of the people are, right. they're not enjoying it. Right, and so there's, a, there's no way around that unless you want your studio to become like a radio station, which a radio station, a successful one even today, a music station, has a slice of a demographic that's usually seven, like 10 years, 35 to 44 women would be a demographic that a radio station would try to really own, right? And so it only plays songs that that demo likes, but only half of that demo because the men have a whole different set of songs. So every demo, and you can go through, you know, 12 to 12 to 18, 18 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44, all the way up. Every one of those slices has a male and female playlist. So think about that division. Think about separation. As soon as you play one song, unless everybody's that same in that little tiny age group, you're not really able to welcome everybody. You can't with the songs. But the funniest thing was when I, I didn't have, remember CDs? Do you remember what a CD is? I had CDs, and I was playing CDs every class, and I forgot my CDs, and I almost wanted to say, I'll be back in 20 minutes. I got to go home and get my CDs. <laughs> I couldn't teach without. The first time I heard people breathing and not breathing, it's the first time I'm like, oh, people aren't even doing, they're not doing anything. They're not doing the pranayama at all. Um, that was w exposed. And then after class, a woman came up to me, and I'll never forget it. She was one of the regulars. She said, I'm so glad you're not playing the damn music. <laughs> oh, my God, I hated every song. <laughs> like, I don't know how I survived. Like, I felt like what an idiot I am. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> but that's a good point. The, if, if we know, and now we do know, that the prana, pranayama, right? This is not news. This is yeah, yoga, no, right? Yeah. Like, that that's one of the most important things, especially today with, with anxiety management. And if it's our job as a teacher to hold the class accountable to doing this kind of breathing and matching it to their motion, how do you do it with music? 
Like, really, how do you, you can't hear their breath. They can't hear their breath. They can't hear each other's breath if the music is blaring. So that's, that's another thing, too. Like, we have teachers in our training often who really defend the music and why they play the music. And their reasonings sound really good, but they can't. We constantly challenge them. But what does it have to do with yoga? Where is, tell us how playing the music is teaching yoga. How? And the only, the closest answer for me that anybody's ever come to is it does work in the same way breath awareness works, whereas you're moving your attention away from your stressful thoughts onto something else. So yes, well, when I'm listening to the music, I'm not listening to my stressful thoughts in the same way that breath awareness works. Okay, Good. All right. That true. However, the music is outside of you. It's something that you must seek, but your breath well, isn't. Music is is working to the part of your mind that's demanding to be entertained. It's not. Do, it's feeding the part of your mind that's addicted to entertainment. So that's really that. In addition, that's really right. a, it's, given, the, it's the heroine. It's, it's giving them the relief. It's not it's teaching right. them. To be a whole person without any kind of external, without anything external. Right. So if you remove the music, right, they're relying on the music. You remove the music, what do they have? They don't have that right. tool anymore. They don't have it. However, the breath is always happening, right? The right. breath is yes. always there. So it's not looking externally. Yeah. So I, see, I can really see that argument. I've never heard it like that. But that makes sense for a little bit. Until you remove that element, and now right. you're it's something back else, with just like again. the heroin. Well, the heroin makes me feel so much better, right. and I'm not stressed anymore. And so does the glass the of wine. Thing. So does a book. So does a movie. But they're all in the entertainment. They're not in the yoga category. It's in the entertainment the category. Problem, and from a business perspective too, like some, they'll argue. Well, if the, I, the people love it, but we'll say, but really, as a business, really step back. And I get it. Believe me, I get it. Because as a studio, like as a business owner, you're always looking for ways to you know to boost attendance and stuff but in the long run you're you're taking your market that can be teens to 70s like philip just said and you're shrinking it you just you might think you Expanded. might think that it's Expanded. building the business but you're really you're limiting your audience you are so so we take away the music we ask them to pay attention to their breath, which they may or may not have ever done before in their that. life. More than that. We ask them to synchronize their breath with their motion, which sounds like, oh, of course we do. I go to st my student, it doesn't. We go to these studios, it's not happening. So then we ask them to synchronize their motion with other people. So this is a this is a bit this is a, a task that requires full on presence. I say it all the time while I'm teaching. You actually have to pay attention to what you're doing while you're doing it. It sounds like the simplest instruction in the world. Keep your attention on what you're doing in real time. It's not as easy as it sounds. And that's what, and now, and our students, just by showing up to class, just by sinking their breath to motion, by breathing and moving with everybody else, they're doing it for longer and longer periods of time. We keep expanding the amount of time, like we call it rollicking, where we keep them going, keep them talk, going. Yeah, we, we try not to talk at all, unless just anything that's needed, like giving them instructions to keep going. But we try to step out of it and keep them in this state of pure presence for as long as we can. My experience with meditation and, and teaching meditation and working with mindfulness is that the way I sum it up is when we get still, when we remove the entertainment, 
we get to see what's brewing under the surface. Mm. And a lot of that is anxiety. So mm-hmm. let's jump into that. Um, I know mm-hmm. you've been studying it a lot and just go for it. You what do you want to share? The definition of anxiety is fear of fear. That's funny. It's fear of fear. <laughs> it's fear. You're afraid of fear. Like you, you, and then you feel a little and you get more, like it builds from, from that. Um, so um, the levels of anxiety in this country, in, in, this, in the United States, um, particularly very heightened among the uh, people born after 1995. It's called iGen. It's not so much the millennials. People try to blame the millennials with this, but it's not, this, they're, not, they're not having the same problem. The levels have, have skyrocketed. Um, it's the first, as I said before, the first generation that's grown up with an iPhone in their hand the whole time. So there's a, there's a lot, of, we could talk about the causes, but I don't think, I think what we want to do is talk about how yoga affects anxiety. And so, or really mindfulness has really super duper studies on this. And yoga and mindfulness have so much in common that a lot of the studies that are, these uh, biomarker studies on, on anxiety and depression that uh, are so, so well put together that are on mindfulness have total application to much of what we do in a yoga class if we're doing what we just described. Not if we're playing music, it won't work. But if you get them into silence, you get them breathing together, you get them moving, you get the pranayama, you get them into a, a, a state of, of mindfulness, they're going to get the benefits of lower anxiety. I think I talked about earlier this, this study. It's so telling where they put people under an MRI live. They were alive in there. And they, they said, now think negative thoughts about yourself. And the parts of their brain associated with anxiety lit up as expected. And then they said, now think about, now take your awareness and focus on your breath. They called it, I love this phrase, breath-focused attention. A lot of the psychological language in these psychological studies are so great. I just love the language, but breath-focused attention. And right away, the anxiety lights went off and, and lights associated in the brain with, uh, with well-being and calmness and confidence, all, those all lit up. It's really worth noting it didn't take 10 years in Tibet, in Tibet. You don't have to go to Tibet for 10 years and get that. It happened like that. So the, the results are in a yoga studio or in a mindfulness experience are very, very, very powerful. They've been very well uh, measured now. They're totally credible. So why in the world are we monkeying around, playing, entertaining them when we can actually get at the cause of the anxiety is to have them learn that moving their awareness away from the anxiety is the first major step. You're in charge of your awareness. Did you know that? You can move your awareness to whatever you want. We suggest move it to your breath when you don't like the way you feel. We say in our classes, anytime you don't like the way you feel, move your awareness to your breath. Notice your breath. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. It works that fast. And all of a sudden, you're in a different body. Everything's different. The world looks different from that place. Uh, we could talk a little bit more about anxiety. I mean, the anxiety and suicide rates are, I don't know if you want how much detail. On our website, you can see stuff like this. Well, this I think it's because it's so epidemic right now. I mean, we're, we, we're all working with people who are, are um, Dealing experiencing with this. This so one I think shows 61.8% have their main concern about health is anxiety. I mean, that's pretty heavy. And then this, just going to show you these slides quickly. They may not make it into the podcast, but this is attended counseling mental health over uh, from 11 to 18, 18% increase. These people are the 18% increase there. This one is purposefully injured yourself without suicide intent, cutting, hitting, burning, pulling hair, 
27% up, increased. This one is a little scary. Seriously considered attempting suicide, up 50% over those over that eight-year period. That's not. That's a little bit. This is an treacherous. An eight-year period this trend. Is, this is the eight-year yeah, trend. This is not over the course of 50 years. No. This is just the last eight years. The the iPhone stuff. So this is a big one. It's made a suicide attempt, 29% over those. It increased up. It increased by 29% over the eight years, from 0.8 to 10.3% of and the population. And this is coming out of a college, college mental health clinic. clinic. Right. So we're talking about college-age kids. That's right. This is wow. a, another, just another quick one, is a sudden drop in self-esteem. This is measured by uh, monitoring the future, a study called Monitoring the Future. And this just right here, you can see the self-esteem just drops through the floor. And the author of this said, uh, I've been studying large national studies for 25 years. I've never seen a drop this precipitous and this fast. And this is, this happened just right. You can, if you, a sudden drop in self-esteem. This is the, s the same demographic, basically. This is high school age kids, uh, and the data is 2016. So these kids are starting to go into college now. And it's not just like like when we grew up watching TV, having your you know Saturday Night Love Boat. You got to get up and change the channel and all of that. They're not just they're not just taking the content in. They're engaging with right. the content too. It's so much more than just yeah. Love Boat was on and that was it. This is <laughs> this is you're constantly seeing where your friends are, whether you're there or not. Right. Think about it. Think of how your self-esteem as a teenager in back in the 70s and 80s. Okay. And now imagine having that, but at any given time your picture would be taken and posted, which in, you, in your mind is to your whole world. Because in their mind, like as a teenager, their whole circle of friends is their whole world. And at any given time, there's a picture of you on social media, right? So you have that pressure. It's the pressure of what's everybody doing, fear of missing out. Um, Screen time in general. The Snapchatting, it's constant. It's like everybody has to know what everybody's doing. It's just, it's, we, we see yeah. it. I mean, we, we see it in our own household. And it is, it's, it's, it's an interruption to the, they, they have a hard time staying focused on just one thing sitting down to do their homework or having a meal with the family because the phone, it's like they have to get back to we the phone. We have it, too. Adults like, have yeah, the same thing. Right. I mean, I, I catch myself all the time. It's, yeah. it's intense. Well, what I was going to say, I mean, all of this is alarming. So our vision now is can yoga studios be a viable option, right? Right. Is in, it, can in, it be an viable option? Can it be the front line, like a front line of learning resilience to anxiety? Right. What, what are you finding? What are you seeing? Because you're, you're having people come here you know right, for the first right. time and it like me when you when i walked in like whoa no music no mirrors but this is hell so what do you, what do well, you why did you stay you stayed and you I came back stay. oh yeah back? i came back why did you come back because i i loved it well, what did you love about it what happened after the first class for many athletes and competitive people i think that kind of class is for the, they come out of that class and for the first this is for me too the first time in my life i felt no stress in my body i never knew what that felt like and i was like what the hell just happened to me all the stress is gone in my body i don't know how it happened or what they did but i have to go back i don't want to feel that stress in my body anymore and i think that was a profound moment for me and i think yeah yeah 100 yeah, definitely how i felt physically but I think how I felt mentally, you know, mm. why did I stay? 
can't really remember, but knowing me back then, it was probably like, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to I'm going to mm. stay in this hell and I'm going to see what it's about. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, like you don't give up. You don't you don't walk in yeah. somewhere and then walk out. You fulfill what you said you were going to do. So it was probably a little bit of enduring. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. I was yeah. enduring. And then eventually just softened into the practice, which, mm. you know, gave me all the tools to really transform my life in, in mm. a very positive way. But yeah, what are, what are you seeing? How is, can this be a frontline defense to anxiety? Well, and how are you teaching it? Just to, I mean, Philip's really delved into it, but it started with, like I said earlier, we opened the studio and we wanted it, you know, like, let's see if this really works. If all, all of the ideas and all of the way that we're telling others to teach, is this, is this working? And what we started to hear from our students was things like you're saying, this you have to know this practice has changed my life. Like I, and they're not saying I lost, they are also, but I lost 10 pounds because that will happen too. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things like a student saying to us, I just, I want you to know this, but my wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was what I learned in my yoga practice here that has helped me, help me help her through this. I see myself catastrophizing. I see it. I'm able to actually witness my fearful thoughts and manage them breath by breath, instant by instant. And that's what we want. We're going, this is what we want to do. This is we, how, okay, and how, do we know for sure how this is happening? Because we want more of that. And that's what's fueled our passion to keep, keep digging deeper into this. The inquiry that, we, that started few years back, how does yoga work, is now being answered by science. So we're studying science. Yoga-based stress reduction is basically what you will learn. What we want to do is, is explain the science behind yoga as, it's, as best as the best uh, examples of it as, that we know now. So we, we look out at the studio. A lot of studios could have teachers claim, make claims like Renee just made, I'm sure. But we're saying, how do we maximize the likelihood of that yes. happening? How do we throw out all the crap out of the class that doesn't add to that and maybe even subtracts from that and make the class pure mindfulness-based stress reduction? Or we'll call it yoga-based stress reduction. So we've identified, this is, a, this is just like a draft, but some of the elements that we think are critical to making this work, to having, to maximizing the therapeutic power or potency of the class. Part of it is verified group breathing. We, why do we say verified? Why would, you, why would we have to say verified? Because in a lot of classes, the teacher's calling inhale, exhale, but if you really look closely, people are breathing any which way. Or not it's, at all. Or not at all. And so that's the first thing. Verified is this synchronized. It happens naturally when we synchronize the breath. When we get everyone to breathe together, the teacher can hear it. They can manage it. They can, they're number one for vinyasa. What is vinyasa? It's basically matching breath and motion. Number one thing is being lost in the culture. It's being lost in the culture of yoga, I think, in some cases. Not all, but in some cases. So I think that's the first element that if you can maintain that, your likelihood of creating a high-potency uh, therapeutic class, very good. Very, uh, very good. Uh, the other is poses. And we're starting to teach the poses in new ways. First of all, we threw out, and no one even noticed, all the poses that have ridiculous risk in them. We don't do any inversions anymore. We don't call headstand anymore. Why? It has high risk and low value. What does it do? People, they call it the king of the asana. We say, 
we don't, it, I don't see the king of the asana in any studies, and I practically don't see any. All I see is people hurting their cervical spine or their neck. Like, why do we, why do we want to do that? Did we, so we made some decisions. We thought they would be hard. We took them out, and nobody noticed. And wait, <laughs> just to be clear, there, there's down dogs and stuff like yeah. that. They're, yeah. they're, they're inverting, but they're not yeah. putting any pressure on there. We're not doing anything that's going to compromise on this. the cervical spine. So, but then another aspect of poses that we're really excited about is this studies. And I've got a whole bunch. I've got like six studies on it. And I've also this, this great studies on posture. And we call it powerful pose, and it's basically mountain pose. But now that I understand how mountain pose works, what it really does, I'm really excited. I want to teach it everywhere. I want to teach it in all the poses. I want to see it everywhere in the pose. I want people to have it. Basically, your posture has feedback to your levels of, sense of serotonin. Serotonin is the good drugs in your pharmacy and your body. Like it's the it's confident, it's the confidence, well-being drugs, those drugs. You have a pharmacy. You can get more of the serotonin if you act like you're confident, which is this pose, which is shoulders up and back and down and strong, chest up, that kind of thing. That pose right there. That pose tells the body everything's safe. You uh, look confident. We're going to give you the confidence drugs, and so you get more serotonin if you stand like that. If you t so I'm teaching triangle. I'm wanna, I want I want. Every single pose I teach now, I'm looking for that pose. Airplane, all these poses, I'm trying to get that alignment in the pose. Of course, I was always taught that, but now I really get it. Like, it makes sense. Why would I want them ever to be? The opposite of that pose we call. We're all sitting up. What's the opposite? Everyone's sitting up tall. So damn but what's this pose? Spot on right this pose, right, this pose, this pose is we call this the pose of the iPhone user. So the shoulders are slooped, your spine is coming out your back, and you've got this your neck is all cranked up. So that pose has the opposite effect. So that, that message is to the mind. It's a little, you're acting like you're scared, like you're really afraid, like you're trying to back into a corner. We better put you on high alert. We're going to put you on high alert, which equals high anxiety, essentially. So this pose, if you, if you don't teach this, we call it lobster pose, if you don't teach this powerful pose, and you let people go into poses like this a lot, into this weak pose or whatever you want to call it, this iPhone user pose, you're basically letting them get away with their, to practice in a yoga class the worst possible posture. We always want to have, because what happens is their serotonin availability goes down. Means less serotonin means more anxiety. So this is fiddly. Now that I see in science that this that the postures can be manipulated by the posture. The serotonin is manipulated by the posture. It's like, holy shit. And what? that's part of why do, why do we feel so good after yeah. the class? Now it's a little another piece and of the And we don't want to miss right? that ever. Anywhere in the class, I want to get them to have that posture. I don't want them ever to get this weak posture. I want them always to have. So that changes the way you teach a class and postures. And the way I t t teach postures is so much different now. It's so simple. I'm looking for that pose. Of course, you would be. I was taught that, but I didn't, it, I didn't really learn it until I saw the science behind it. Another one is single-pointed awareness is another one that we, we love that now. Single-pointed awareness. Dharana um, is single-pointed concentration. We use, in yoga, we use a lot in dristi as a dristi point. But what I really see how it works, it works with seated meditation. So now we're doing it. So the, the two go together. Like if you can't, so it basically says set all of your attention on a single point, right? Put all your attention on that single point. Boom. Lock it. Make it so you, this is language I like. Make it so your eyeballs don't move. 
So now they're really locked on this. They've taken all their resources of focus and they're using them. Now that all their resources of focus are all in one place, and then you say, close your eyes. And you don't have to hold it long, you can hold it for a minute, a couple, number of breaths, and all of a sudden they close their eyes, and this is in a seat, this place is, there's really good places for this. In an active ass-kicking vinyasa class, there's great places for this. But this is, so all of a sudden they close their eyes and they're sort of jump-started into meditation. It's not like you have to sit there and go, fiddle and stretch and scratch. They, it, because you've already taken your fa facilities of concentration and you've, you've taken control of them and now the meditation just jump starts. You, 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 you'll, you just practice it and you'll see it works beautifully. So that's an, those two together are great. There are so much science on those. John Kabat-Zinn's uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, the studies are just fantastic. And they're so, they're so it's, it, there's no doubt about this stuff. Talbot Cox, Tom Voss, Magda Boulay, Kristen Mayer, Jerry Rodriguez, and Philip and Renee. What an all-star cast covering relevant topics for a high vibrational life. You see, yoga and meditating, it's not about not being an athlete or not being an entrepreneur or not being passionate or informed. We are on the road to mastery. This community is, and it's a moment-to-moment -moment practice that is not about pushing anything away. It's about fine-tuning ourselves to be the best humans, spirits, and minds that we can be. It truly is the essence of yoga, which is to yoke, to bring together. So keep going. Keep listening. Get over to Patreon, where wisdom is being dropped every week on the YTP Mini, and continue to live right now. Just right now. There is nothing more than this moment. To be present is to make yourself available to greatness. Go easy, show up, and let nothing stand in your way. Here's to a bountiful and healthy and beautiful new year for all.